Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade under the WrestleCopia brand. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Ekstat. Steve, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Steve, I'm glad you were interested in being a part of this, and uh, we kind of came up with the idea of the Wrestling Memory Grenade as just explains <laughs> what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going all over the place, kind of like a grenade of wrestling memories. We didn't want to pick a, a specific promotion or a specific succession of years or a specific era and just continue and continue and continue down that road. We want to cover one year, one promotion at a time, jump around, have a little fun like that. And um, your take on everything? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it can get boring and stale doing the same thing over and over. So uh, jumping around, getting different tastes, different times, different different wrestling uh, is something I'm looking forward to doing. 1989 is a great year to start off with. Oh, you just, you just, you just spoiled it for everyone. I had a drum already and everything, <laughs> but that's <laughs> hey, all right. It's just 1989. It doesn't, doesn't okay. know what, what exactly we're doing yet. But basically anybody with ADHD, you can kind of uh, tune in every so often and we'll be somewhere else, a different year, a different promotion. So, uh, yeah, just stick with us. Hopefully we, you know, grow some listeners here, uh, in the weeks, months to come. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Why? Because it wouldn't fit the words wrestling grenade in our Twitter handle. And basically, like Steve just said, we're going to start with a 1989. And I, I had a drum roll queued up for the year in the promotion, so I guess it's kind of anticlimactic now. But I'm going to drum roll it anyway, so you can figure out w what promotion you think we might be starting with. Drum roll, please. And the inaugural choice of the wrestling memory grenade. We're going to dissect and analyze the 1989 year for the National Wrestling Alliance. And it's going to be a fun time. And basically what we're going to do as we pick these promotions, as we pick these years, is we're kind of going to go back, look at old newsletters, discuss everything that was going on behind the scenes, as well as review basically everything we can get our hands on footage-wise and kind of just review everything that we see on TV as well. Steve, you got any other thoughts before we kind of dive right into this here? Yeah, sorry for spoiling the year, but uh, again... <laughs> I'm assuming most people probably assume we would start with something WWF related. That's what everybody does. But no, doing something a little different. 89 is a crazy year for for the NWA. Uh, so much change, so much talent in one spot. Um, and I felt like the matches and everything throughout the whole year is very entertaining, very fun to watch. And definitely looking forward to going back through it again, uh, looking at it with a more critical eye than just being a regular fan, reliving some of the glory days of the uh, – of the National Wrestling Alliance. And before we dive into 1989, we're going to take a look at what was going on in the last four to six weeks of 1988. Just kind of skip through, skim through that real quick because so, so much was happening behind the scenes that led into the big changes of 1989. Turner had taken over, purchased the company from Jim Crockett. Uh, Dusty Rhodes was basically getting ousted as Booker, which would lead to him leaving the company. All kinds of things were in disarray. We, you know, Jim Hurd's coming in, which, you know, you've heard many stories about Jim Hurd over the years. And, I mean, there's just so much to 
to discuss and to talk about. We're going to try to cover, shoot through 88 real quick, the end of 88. Then we're going to kick things off with 1989. Going to do our best after this uh, first episode to try to knock out about three to four weeks of the programming at a time. Yeah, there's just so much happening right now. It was absolutely necessary to cover the end of 88, just so you have an idea of what's going on in 89, because the entire company basically changed from behind the scenes to on camera. You can't really begin to talk about 1989 if you don't bring up the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and everything going on with Dusty Rhodes near the end of 88. As most know, uh, Dusty Rhodes, the booker for Jim Crockett promotions for the last several years prior to this, and uh, his booking had become, his finishes, I should say, uh, had become rather stale, many of them known as the Dusty Finish, and other nonsensical DQ countouts, uh, no finishes given, uh, screw job in the world title matches, things of that nature. Just a lot of poor booking decisions, especially finishes in the hands of Dusty. He was That was coming down on him hard. Turner had taken over the company. Jack Petrick was introduced as the new head, the president of Turner brand NWA. And uh, Dusty was kind of on the outs, losing favor as Booker at that point. And I know you took a bunch of notes, and if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, uh, it's just remarkable. Um, NWA was super hot, you know, 85, 86. I'm assuming with Dusty as the Booker, somehow they squandered all their momentum and everything uh, within a couple of years. So it's it's crazy. It took an ownership change just for them to realize the mistakes they were making over and over. Um, you can only have so many false finishes and no definitive winners for so long before people just stop showing up because you know what's going to happen. Uh, at some point, you got to have a payoff, and it just never seemed to come with Dusty Rhodes and his booking strategy. So to me, it was a little too late, obviously. Good for Ted Turner to recognize the issue and make some changes. And, you know, basically, I guess what, what happened there was it's just when the changing of the guard happened, Dusty no longer had the political power that he had with Jim Crockett, who was in charge. Of course, Crockett stayed on working behind the scenes there briefly for the Ted Turner NWA, but he didn't have the power he had when he was the owner, obviously. And uh, Dusty's clout just didn't go as far as it did. Meanwhile, Ric Flair's over here speaking with Jack Petrick, other higher-ups in the Turner organization trying to get things Changed around. Of course, Dusty had an idea at Starcade that Flair would drop the, the World Heavyweight title to an up-and-coming Rick Steiner in a matter of seconds to minutes, depending, depending on who you hear tell the story. Either way, I kind of saw where Dusty was coming from with the idea, try to make an instant new star. It was still kind of early for Rick, I think. He was over, don't get me wrong, but Rick got in the ear of Petrick, or so the story goes. Had the match changed to Rick Flair versus Lex Luger, remove Rick Steiner from the equation. They went over Dusty's head to do this. It got changed. Dusty was still a booker at that point, of course. He got angry. He went and talked to Crockett, tried to get Crockett to talk. It was just a bunch of kitty stuff, if you ask me, uh, trying yeah, to get the match yeah, changed back and forth and whatever. But, you know, that, I think that's where the, the bricks started to fall. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also saw once, like, Rick Flair got more control over his own stories and where he's going. And then I guess Dusty retaliated by only booking him, like, six times in December. So. <laughs> it's yeah, childish and Dusty, stuff. Yeah, and there, there was more childish behavior going on. Dusty started no-showing a few events, maybe hoping it would, uh, you know, ruffle some feathers and maybe help him out in the in the process. Maybe uh, they see how much they need him. I'm not really sure what – I'm not going to speak for him, but, I mean, it seems like maybe something he was going for there. Dusty had planned at the Clash of the Champions to do an angle uh, where the Road Warriors would turn on him 
remove a spike from one of their shoulder pads and, and basically stab it into the eye of Rhodes. He was told not to run the angle initially after the now infamous Polly Dangerously Jim Cornette fiasco on television where Cornette bladed a gusher and Turner said absolutely no more blood on TBS. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. <laughs> and Dusty kind of just a big F you, I guess, because he was going to do what he was going to do, went out there and bladed, did the eye, eye gimmick, but actually rushed it because he felt his power was waning and rushed the angle to get it over before it was initially planned just to make sure that his spot was secured for Starcade and with the match with Sting against the Road Warriors. Again, more questionable booking decisions by Dusty. Absolutely. Hot shot his own angle just to save his, his own ass a little bit. <laughs> what a guy. I get it. I mean, if you're, if you're backs against the wall and that's all you can really do is protect yourself, uh, especially when it feels like everybody's, everybody's against you at that point. I mean, that's what happens, but it's not the smartest of ideas. I don't know what the idea was to turn the Road Warriors heel. I mean, those guys were super over still, even when they were bad, supposed to be bad, so to speak. It didn't make sense. I remember as a kid watching some of this stuff from 89, just like the tapes, and I'm like, the Road Warriors are fighting Dusty Rhodes? I thought those guys were always partners. You know, you see the War Games tapes from the mid-80s, and then you go to 89, it's like they're fighting each other, and it's like, what the heck's going on? This is before I knew what exactly happened and everything, but... uh yeah, it never made sense. And then just for him to hot shot his own angle and go against the directive of Turner and Petrick about the blood, this uh, it's a guy that's going down swinging, it sounds like. You know, the Road Warriors heel turn, it felt abrupt to me when I was watching it originally. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but I've seen a lot of heel turns that didn't make a whole lot of sense. It was just done because they felt it was something that needed to be done right then to pop the ratings or just put more fans in the seats. This didn't really do either for me. People didn't want to boo the Road Warriors, which we'll be discussing here in a matter of a few more weeks of TV. <laughs> they won't be booing the Road yeah. Warriors. But, you know, uh, what I thought was interesting was Dusty loved John Wayne, and he loved to use John Wayne movie names for subtitles for pay-per-views and things of that nature. And here, he titled the pay-per-view Starcade, subtitled True Grit. True Grit, of course, is a John Wayne movie. John Wayne Where's an eye patch in that movie? So Dusty did this, this this blind gimmick to mimic John Wayne's Rooster Cogburn character in True Grit. He even named the pay-per-view basically after his angle, even though he wasn't the main event. And then they go to Starcade, and by that point, I don't know if Dusty doesn't care anymore or what the deal was, but he stopped selling his eye, didn't wear the eye patch, just walked in there and wrestled a normal match with Sting against the Road Warriors. So I just I found that interesting, too. Yeah, uh, he done his own angle, got him in his spot, named the pay-per-view after him, and then he doesn't even follow through. To me, it, it, it sh you should be professional. Yeah, you lost your spot, but as a booker and things like that, and you're probably on your way out. We all know that, but be a professional. If you're going to do something, finish it. Uh, the way I swear I look at it, and this is clearly not professional behavior. And what's funny is, and it's kind of a little bit going a little bit ahead, but on one of the shows we watched, uh, it was filmed. I'm sure before Starcade, but they just aired it uh, on the 1st of January. <laughs> Dusty actually has uh, his eye taped up for a match that they showed after Starcade. So uh, that's one of those things that NWA probably messed up on their production or something, or they just put something in the can for New Year's Day. But it's kind of, it's just 
one of those things, man. I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand why you can't be professional and and, and do what you want to do. Right. And we'll try to. I'll try to move away from Dusty here and get over to the next phase of the uh, the takeover, if you will. Um, but you know, Dusty basically he resigned as Booker. I think it was a forced resignation in the first week of December. Jim Crockett took over as uh, the Booker just for the rest of the month. The feeling was he would be replaced by another Booker in January. Then we move on. We learn that Jim Hurd's coming in. He's going to take over uh, with the title of Executive Vice President of National Wrestling Alliance. And uh, nobody knew a whole lot about Jim Hurd at that point, other than he had had ties with Sam Muchnick and the St. Louis Wrestling Office. Uh, I believe he may have even done some things with directing some TV um, for Vince McMahon Sr., maybe, back in the 60s. Uh, so he had, he had some of idea of what wrestling was at least the 60s version, perhaps maybe some of the 70s, but certainly not 1989. And even then, Hurd never had a degree in understanding the business or how to handle the business, so to speak. So uh, I thought that was an interesting choice, but I guess, you know, nepotism or he was married into Turner's family, or I don't remember exactly how the story goes without digging up the information, and boom, here we go, Jim Hurd has a job. <laughs> and I thought some of his initial ideas sounded like they might work. Other ones, not so much. Um, we don't. We all know how Jim Hurd's uh, run ended, but uh, initially it sounded like he had some good ideas. I know one of the biggest ones that I, I thought would be, if I was a worker, I'd be appreciative of is uh, if you're like a if you're contracted, you get paid every two weeks. You don't have to worry about a house or drawing, you know, a major card. You got your your guarantee every. You got it paid out every two weeks instead of uh, towards the end of the year or waiting for a house to pay it. So I, I feel like getting that guaranteed money would probably be a lot easier to feel good about what you're doing. But when, if you're one of those guys that weren't contracted, you wasn't getting that money. So I'm sure those people that were contracted were happy and those people that weren't, uh, probably not. But uh, I thought that was one of the better things that he had laid out, especially with the way the house shows and things were going at the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm not really sure how contracts were written back in 1989 for the uh, Turner guys. The salary idea sounds good. I mean, you know you're getting paid. You know you're getting a set amount. I don't know if that worked so well with guys that were higher up on the card who maybe were used to being able to draw an extra little bit of money and more incentive based on the house. So I'm not really sure how that worked out. I guess it depends on the wrestler. It depends on the contracts. I really I, didn't, I don't know the contracts, so I can't speak to say if the salary idea was good or bad. It sounds, in theory, like a good idea. You know exactly what you're getting every couple weeks. Um, that's what I would <laughs> I would like, but again, you know, yeah, going yeah, back to that, sure. if it's based on a percentage of the gate and it's not wrote into the contract, it's you know it's a different different story altogether. I don't know how that would work. Nevertheless, yeah, I, mean, I guess was, it's one of those things. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, nevertheless, there was you know reports of low morale. They wanted everybody to move to Atlanta around Atlanta so they could catch all their flights out of Atlanta. Of course, Turner was based out of Atlanta. That forced some guys to go home. Maybe not necessarily quit, but they certainly no-showed some shows. Nikita Koloff did quit. He refused to drive to and from Atlanta to catch his flights, which put a monkey wrench in his baby face team with Ivan Koloff that they were setting up for there at the end of uh, 88. Uh, did they, I thought like, a, like two weeks later they changed their mind. I, I read it on one of the newsletters that they changed their mind on that, and then, but Nikita had already quit by then. So it's like he quit. Right, for and some he never offered. He he never offered to come back either, though. I'm sure the door was open uh, for someone of his level. Yeah. 
But there yeah, were a lot absolutely. of guys no show in advance during this time. You know, I, I believe Bam Bam Bigelow. I think Jimmy Garvin went down to Dallas for a couple of weeks. Sheep Herders jumped over to the WWF. Tony Schiavone left or would be leaving very shortly. Yeah. yeah. There was just a whole lot of stuff going on. And then Dusty, before he left, left his fingerprint because he brought in a whole bunch of his guys. He brought in, <laughs> I don't know why, but he brought in the Commandos. Uh, Dick Murdoch was back. <laughs> brought in his son Dustin, teamed him with Kendall Wyndham, which made sense because Dustin was green as grass. Kendall Wyndham's didn't look like a whole lot, but he, he could at least work. And certainly I'm sure he helped Dustin a, a lot along that way. A lot of changing of the guards. Some guys quitting for for real. Some guys quitting for a week, coming back. A lot of new names coming in. Michael Hayes, Butch Reed, Steve Casey. Also worked as Stephen Dane later on. Bob Orton came in. Uh, Jimmy Garvin came back after a couple weeks. Al Perez was back. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, quite a different look to the promotion, just the talent, the roster. Yeah, it was like completely different night and day. You know, you go back to October, November of 88, and then go to January 89, you're looking at a completely different roster. It wasn't just Dusty heading, heading out and changing. It was uh, a lot of moving parts. But I think it's going to be for the better. I think Obviously, we're going to have to get through the rest of the year. But uh, some of the guys that they were pushing and had already there and established, uh, they were doing okay. And, of course, you know, some of the things Crockett did that made him go broke was he purchased an office in Texas when they, were, when they had been based out of the Carolinas and, and Georgia and things like that. And then he purchased the, the jet planes and things like that. And they all, everybody seems to blame Dusty for all this. He talked Crockett into doing all this. Well, Dusty lived in Texas, so you put two and two together there. I mean, it's possible. Nevertheless, and I'm not trying to rib Dusty. All this sounds like I'm trying to rib Dusty, and I'm not. He was a fantastic entertainer. I, I enjoyed him very much growing up. But, I mean, I'm just calling it like I see it, just calling it like it is here as far as facts go. Then we see Dusty gets demoted. He's no longer Booker. He's only an on-air talent. He's only a wrestler now. He has no power, no pull, no no anything, no clout anymore. We learn he sells his house in Texas. He's moving to Florida. So there's talk of him trying to upstart the old Florida territory uh, again. I, I believe Steve Kern and Mike Graham are still down there at that time trying to trying to keep some semblance of a wrestling promotion going on down there. It wasn't very successful. Dusty uh, would end up going down there and trying something, leaving the NWA here in the first couple of weeks of 89. Uh, yeah, and I know he uses uh, the AWA a little bit to leverage, <laughs> to stay on TV a little bit during the transition period. There's a lot of people that get, catch a lot of flack over, uh, over the way they were they handled the bu- their business, not just in the NWA, but WWF and everywhere else. And uh, Dusty's one of those guys that... Uh, that he doesn't really catch that flack. And I'm, I'm assuming it's because of the way he ended his career. Not It, it was so far, this stuff so far gone uh, in people's memories and things like that to where they kind of forget and they just remember the guy that was maybe in NXT or the lovable guy that helped train a lot of people that we see on TV every week now. And it kind of reshaped his image a little bit. And obviously with Cody and Dustin doing their thing in AEW. So like his name is loved by everybody, but he's done a lot of things that deserve the flack that others like maybe Hulk Hogan or those guys get because yeah, I mean, he, he was, he was just like them. <laughs> and I feel like maybe something could have been worked out there. There was a lot of talk that there was no way he was staying once he lost power, but he went to the WWF where he had absolutely no power. He was forced to wear polka dots, even had a good time and made some money. And I think that was the thing here was not only did he lose all of his power, but I'm assuming, and that's again, just an assumption there was probably some contract renegotiations here. He's no longer the booker. He's no longer in charge of anything but showing up and performing on TV. So I'm assuming they were wanting to restructure some kind of a deal 
taken a major pay cut, and I don't, I don't know that he was going to go for that either after everything he had done in that company that had been very hard on him. And they were setting up Dusty versus Barry Windham in a U.S. title feud leading into the February pay-per-view, but of course Dusty leaves and we don't get that, we don't see that. That pretty much sets the stage for where we are as we get ready to cover the actual television programming here in 19... Uh, the end of it, tail end of 88, we're going to discuss December 31st programming and uh, move forward from there. Sounds like a plan for me, man. I'm excited. I'm ready to get it going. And basically what our, the, the plan is, I'm going to really, really quickly run over Starcade, and we're going to discuss TV for the, the weekend of December 31st, 1988. And from there, we're going to start hitting everything and move on down 1989. Before we do that, uh, I just want to mention that we're going to be covering pretty much every week of World Championship Wrestling, which later became WCW Saturday Night, the Saturday Night 605 program, which, again, interestingly enough, beginning of 89, they announced that it's moving to 705, which I had forgotten or never even knew, didn't Prime remember. Time, baby. Yeah, so getting closer. <laughs> they they were, they were pushing, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be in primetime. I mean, J- Jim Ross was announcing it that way. Yeah, remember, and, guys, next week, primetime. <laughs> so, you know, th- those are easy to access on the WWE Network. There's also a lot of things floating around. The main event, the Saturday morning program, which I can't wait to talk about, Championship Wrestling was called, uh, Worldwide Pro. Later on in June or July or whatever it is, Power Hour will also be added. But right now, our main show we're going to be covering every week uh, will be World Championship Wrestling. I'm hoping to cover much as much of the main event as we can in Championship Wrestling. Championship Wrestling is another interesting program because when Turner purchased Crockett, Immediately, just about immediately, David Crockett was removed from the Saturday night programming for, for good cause. However, thank you, thank you, he, <laughs> he was given a Saturday morning program to host. David Crockett is the host, the lead host. Now, if you've ever wow. paid attention, if you go back and you watch the Mid-Atlantic programming on the WWE Network or, or anything like that, you notice there's always somebody else hosting the program, whether it was Tony, whether it was Jim Ross later on, whether it was Bob Cottle back then. David Crockett kind of worked alongside someone most of the time, and uh, it was scary to think that he might be hosting a show, but what they did was just, whether they did it because they had to, or it was just evil genius, but they switched weeks, bi-weekly. It was Paulie Dangerously co-hosting with Crockett, and on the opposite weeks, it was Jim Cornette hosting with Crockett. And these were the most enjoyable shows, just based on the commentary <laughs> alone, that, I, that I've had in quite a while. And we'll, we'll discuss that when we start uh, breaking things down here in a few minutes, though. But yeah, so we're, we're going to be talking World Championship Wrestling, main <laughs> event, which was the Sunday night program, Championship Wrestling, which I mentioned, David Crockett, uh, Saturday morning program, and then some syndicated shows like Worldwide, Pro. We're just going to kind of run over Starcade real fast and try to get you what get everybody up to speed what was going on and what was about to take place here in 1989. Uh, Starcade took place December 26, 1988, subtitled True Grit. We saw opening match, U.S. Tag Team title change, which I thought was kind of interesting. The Fantastics had just won the titles in a tournament over uh, Ron Simmons and, and Eddie Gilbert, and they turn around and lose them here to Dr. Death and Kevin Sullivan. Uh, it was a pretty long match for, for the opener for the U.S. Tag. I, I like longer tag team matches. I didn't have anything wrong with this, uh, but a hot shot by Doc on Fulton ends that one. Clean title change, 16-minute match. I, I was kind of shocked. That we saw heels go over in, ra- in a rather clean fashion. Yeah, it's unheard of at that time. Um, you can clearly tell there's a culture shift there when it comes to finishes and things like that. I think that was the theme of Star Kid 88. You could just tell a difference in the booking styles. Yeah, for de- sure. de- definitely a change in the booking philosophy. 
Uh, second match was the Midnight Express versus the original Midnight Express. Of course, uh, Jim Cornette manages uh, the Midnight Express, Bob Eaton, Sweet Stan Lane. They uh, defeat Dennis Condry, Randy Rose here with the double goozle. Lane over Rose, 17 and a half minutes. The original Midnight Express get their heat back after the match, so you know the, the feud's still continuing when they when Paul Heyman and, and the uh, original Midnight's beat down Cornette and the others uh, using the tennis racket and the cell phone. There's going to be a whole lot more going on there with those guys here coming in 1989. Uh, I was actually surprised. The first time I ever saw this, I was very surprised. It was supposed to be Ivan Koloff who had turned face on Paul Jones. Uh, and they created the, the the Russians' assassins, of course, had been created earlier as well in, in the year. And Koloff was supposed to team with his, quote, nephew, Nikita Koloff, here against the Russian assassins. Of course, Nikita had quit the promotion recently. And that allowed the Junkyard Dog to parlay his way into a contract and sign with the company to abruptly come in just a couple weeks before this show uh, to team with Ivan here against the the Russians. The stipulation was if the Russians lost, they'd have to unmask and Paul Jones would have to leave. There was already rumors that a lot of the managers were going to be phased out. So I kind of assumed the Russian assassins were going to lose here as a kid, even as a child. The Russian assassins felt very bland for 1989. A masked foreign team just was very bland to me. The fact that they won is very surprised. But the Russian assassins yeah. go over. Match wasn't very long. Match wasn't very good. Mass team goes over. They don't really do much else beyond this. So I really don't understand the point of that. But it is what it is. I guess they didn't want to expose that they weren't really Russian. It was Jack Victory and the Angel of Death working the gimmick. Uh, then we'll go on to Rick Steiner over Mike Rotunda. 18-minute uh, match. Steiner wins the television championship. It's a major difference from beating Ric Flair for the world title, but Steiner's still giving a bone here, still throwing a bone, and wins his uh, first singles title here in the NWA. Yeah, the, the crowd went absolutely insane for this. It's amazing how over Scott Rick Steiner was uh, at this point. Alex, his little buddy on his hand, and his dog Spike. It, it was just super over, and the match was really good. They show this later on on one of the uh, episodes of of Saturday night. It was really, really well done. It was kind of slow there in the middle, but towards the end, Rick Steiner just went nuts, and uh, it was really good. Even though they had, like, the little false finish, I, I, this was one of those times where I felt like it worked, and uh, it did really well. Rick Steiner running around the ring was pretty awesome, so kudos to him. He was, he was a tremendous wrestler. I'm sure we'll talk about him a little bit more later. Great match here. I wasn't in the habit or the had the ability myself to purchase NWA pay-per-views in 1988. So the first time I saw this was on Turner Home Entertainment, rented it, rented it in 89, maybe maybe 1990, and, and I was very confused with the finish the first time I ever saw this. I didn't understand what the hell happened in regards to the whole bell ringing, Sullivan getting released. I was, I was very confused as, as a 10-year-old or, or whatever. Thankfully, the announcers explained it to where I, I kind of picked up on it after the fact. So like when I watched it again, I understood what was happening. And basically what happened was Dr. Death had come down and rang the bell leading the referee to believe that the time limit expired. So Sullivan got lowered from the shark cage and released, but the match really hadn't ended. So the match continued, and it, and it kind of worked against the varsity club anyway, and Steiner ended up going over. And yeah, the crowd, the explosion, the eruption, it was just amazing. It, it, it really made Rick Steiner, and uh, as much as I love the Steiner brothers, man, it's it's unfortunate that that singles push, that, that overness that Rick had as a single star, Disappeared, disappeared, dissipated, yeah, uh, into 1989. So you know, that was, was pretty unfortunate. And just a quick note, I remember reading in the, in the Observer notes, uh, Rick had uh, 
used his his own dog in the the first appearance, and then thereafter he had had brought in uh, the junkyard dog's actual dog as as playing the character of his dog. It's always funny he used two different dogs. And then uh, you mentioned Alex on his hand, the hand puppet. Alex is actually uh, a gimmick from an old-time wrestler, Killer Carl Cox, who just passed away in the last few years. Cox didn't have Alex on his hand. He would talk to him in the sky. Yeah, I just thought that was a nice uh, nice way to play into the old Carl Cox uh, story. He even used the same name of Alex. Uh, Carl Cox used to talk into the skies uh, to Alex. So that was a nice nod there. I, I don't know yeah, what happened awesome. to that gimmick. That gimmick seemed, I didn't care for the gimmick, but it seemed to get over. I'm sure it certainly, I'm sure worked with the, the children. So I was really surprised. Yeah, it yeah. got, it just seemed to get dropped so quickly. Uh, I didn't particularly care that, for it, but there's a lot of things I don't care for that I see that work uh, for other people. Yeah. And uh, so it was just kind of interesting, but anyways, moving we, on. Oh, go ahead. I was Rick. just going to say one, one quick thing. The thing with Rick Steiner, he's like one of the, outside of maybe sting. Uh, he's one of the few NWA guys from this time frame that, was relatable to kids. Clearly, the NWA went for an adult-oriented crowd, so to speak. More realistic, more real, more tough guy, that sort of fan. And Rick Steiner was like one of those few guys that would relate to a kid. And I think that's why he was so over. is because the kids really liked him. And you could tell, like, that pop was like WrestleMania six demolition winning uh, kind of pop when he won that title. So uh, kudos to him. Uh, he took it and ran with it. It's a shame, like you said, that it just kind of disappeared within a couple months, really. Yeah, I wouldn't argue it's probably the, certainly the biggest pop of the entire card. Next match saw the U.S. champion Wyndham go over Bam and Bigelow in a countout. Bigelow hit the ring post outside, lost by countout in about 16 minutes. Not a whole lot to say here. I was Wyndham's one of the most flawless, natural wrestling wrestlers. I enjoy to watch him. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, during his prime, and dur- during the, especially during the 80s, the late 80s, he was always fun to watch. I loved him in the WWF before he left so quickly. But he just never seemed to stay. When he came to the NWA, he seemed to come to the NWA two, three times throughout 1989, 90, and, and it never worked out. He never stayed. And I know he had you know other commitments and uh, certainly was probably making more money in Japan. Uh, but I just I can't emotionally invest in the Bam Bam Bigelow and Crockett, at least not in this match. I really couldn't. I enjoyed the match. I enjoyed seeing Wyndham and Bigelow in there together because it's not really a pair you see. It's not something you see yeah. very often. So I did like it from that standpoint. I thought there was nothing wrong with the match. Of course, I didn't like the finish, but I don't think either. You know, you weren't going to put the belt on Bigelow. He didn't even stick around. I just don't, I don't see think Bigelow was going to do a job. I don't think, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't, I don't see that happening either. So you, you get what you get there. Then we go to yeah. the semi-main, which was Sting and Dusty. Again, Dusty comes out perfectly fine. No eye problem whatsoever. Just heads to the ring, takes on the Road Warriors. I mean, it's just uh, ironic. He puts himself in this match, doesn't come out uh, a little bit un- unprofessional with the, without the eye patch. Uh, then we get a dusty finish, <laughs> which is uh, disqualification. Um, but again, I don't think you expect the Road Warriors to lose to the Sting and Dusty, especially when you assume Dusty's leaving probably in a couple weeks, which he ended up doing. And I guess it's a way to prevent Sting from doing a job because you knew Dusty wasn't going to do it. Really, it was a, it was an okay match, nothing special. Just really the unprofessionalism of Dusty Rhodes kind of sticks out here. I didn't expect uh, this match really to go any other way. Disqualification made sense here. And and, and as much as it usually bothers me, it didn't really bother me here. I didn't really care for the way the disqualification went down, but I didn't didn't really hate it. It It was okay. The match went about 11 and a half minutes. Sting and Dusty over the Road Warriors qualification. Sting basically came off uh, onto Animal with a body block and uh, Eldering 
prevented Tommy Young, the referee, from making the count. I want to clarify one thing, though, the difference between um, a disqualification finish and a dusty finish, and, and the, because a lot of people do that. They, they confuse the, the two. Uh, a dusty finish is where they tease you with a finish. You, you've witnessed a pinfall. Typically, the baby face has just won a match or a championship belt, only to find out moments later that, no, the referee, the real referee, the first referee or, or whomever, had disqualified the baby faces prior to the pinfall. So then the belts are returned or the, the matches changed back to the heel going over on a disqualification. And that's really the definition of a dusty finish. Dusty actually stole that from Louis Tillette down in Florida. So it's really a Tillette finish, but nobody's going to say that. So it's a dusty, dusty finish. finish. Sounds a lot better. <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and I'm sure, you know, before that it was used somewhere else. Maybe Eddie Graham came up with it. I don't know. Of course, Dusty. I mean, it's a great know, way to get people back. The you know the following month, but when you do it month over month over month, it's just not something you do. Yeah, and it was done repeatedly uh, ad nauseum, monthly. And, That's called uh, killing the town. <laughs> and and doing that at every pay per view was just uh, it was over the top and too much. And, it, and the first time you saw it, it was something special. It was wow, man. They you know when you see it every month, you almost become to expect it. And that's what what the demise of uh, WCW was. You started expecting that where's the run-in on every finish of every pay-per-view. You just knew it. You were trained yep. to wait for it, you know, and it's just like that. And, and that, Dusty couldn't get out of the habit, couldn't break the habit of that. But, yeah, in this instance, it was just a straight-up disqualification, not necessarily a Dusty finish, but, it, you know. The non-finish. I think that's yeah. what NWA yeah. is not for with Dusty is the non-finish. Like, yeah, no finality of anything. I would agree with that. Yeah, either Dusty's winning a belt, or there's there's a non finish. Yeah, uh, most of the time, unless Ronnie Garvin's knocking him out. <laughs> and then I we go to the, go to the main event and probably one of Lex Luger's best uh, best matches of his whole career. Uh, for anybody who says Luger never worked a good match, I am an early year Lex Luger fan. I'm a fan of Lex Luger from eh, more so '89 through '91. That era of his uh, WCW run, I felt like he really came into his own at that point and had some decent matches, even with the bigger guys. Guys were, I wouldn't necessarily say he was the leader in the match, but matches where it could have been a lot worse. Guys later on, like uh, Stan Hansen, Mark Collis, Sid. I mean, these these matches are, could have been doomed. And I, I think he was kind of a little bit of a leader there for a little bit. I don't know that he was ever a great worker, but he certainly didn't. The matches weren't horrendous. And I think that a lot of that goes back to when he was with the Horsemen, learning from the Horsemen, and then working against Ric Flair, Barry Windham, guys like that who taught him so much. And I think there for a few years, he really, he really excelled and really tried very hard to reach the pinnacle, reach the main event, and, and be seen as a wrestler, at least until he got to the WWF and realized, hey, I don't need to wrestle here to uh, be pushed. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Lex Luger. He, he, to me, he's kind of like the opposite of Dusty Rhodes. Uh, we we kind of talked about this, but uh, his career at the end was so negative that it kind of impacted everything else that he did prior. You go back and watch some of these pay-per-views, you watch some of these matches, and it's just like, man, this guy was really good. at. And I get it. He's in there with people like you said, Barry Windham, Lex Luger, uh, or not Lex Luger, but Ric Flair, Sting, and those guys that can sell really well. They can work. They know how to work. They can do everything to make this guy look like a million bucks. So I get it. It's not necessarily him that's doing it, but it takes two to tango. And uh, like you said, this is probably one of his best matches ever. He went 31 minutes with Ric Flair and didn't look out of place. Didn't look. Uh, if you read, if you read the Observer, he says he looked winded, like he was about to pass out as soon as the match was over. But he probably had another 20 minutes in him, if you ask me. 
I know we're not talking about 90, but I love the rest of War 90 match with uh, Ric Flair better outside of the five minutes worth at the end. But uh, this one and the the Great American Bash early on in 88 were probably two of the better matches of Lex Luger's career. And uh, I just wish people could kind of get past some of the things that happened towards the end of his career, uh, especially with Elizabeth. And uh, go back and just watch some of his matches and you can really appreciate how good he was. And uh, he should be remembered for other things than his demons. It's the wrestling business. Everybody has demons. And, uh, yeah, naturally, and, uh, you know, this match ends with Flair uh, going over on Luger. Of course, the stipulation was if uh, Flair had been disqualified, uh, Luger would have won the championship belt that way, so we kind of expected possibly a finish here. Flair goes over Luger, surprisingly, with a relatively clean finish. Not not completely, but, you know, that's Ric Flair, dirtiest player in the game. But I I love the story. He worked on Lex's knee. Lex, Lex Luger picks him up for the, the torture rack. His knee buckles out. Flair lands on top, puts his feet on the ropes to steal the win, if you want to call it steal or whatever. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of shenanigans there to get the pinfall, but it, at the same time, it was relatively clean otherwise, and that was refreshing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, like, some of the stuff that we'll talk about later on, but Ric Flair, his promos talking about the finish is great. I was just holding myself up. <laughs> and then we'll... And, uh, and to be honest, I think it actually gave some uh, put some heat on Luger. Because, you know, Flair had to cheat to beat him. So it left that little window to say, like, you know what? It took you, uh, it took an athletic commission to beat me in July, and then it took you cheating to beat me in December. So I, I deserve another chance, that type of deal. So very well done. Really nice finish to the show. Thankfully, we didn't get the bunkhouse stampede match. So, uh, right. That was a dark match won by JYD on this show. I don't, I don't know that the entire match uh, exists outside of maybe in the uh, WWE. A vault somewhere. And the funny part is, is players interview, you can hear Capetta <laughs> bringing out some of the names, uh, and yeah. they're just like totally some of the classic production quality. Um, I know that was all of the observer is how bad the production was. I'm sure they'll figure it out. And, uh, yeah. So this is where we started reviewing the, the footage and, uh, it started with the December 31st, 88 Saturday morning championship wrestling hosted by David Crockett and Polly dangerously. Uh, just a very enjoyable show. This is a case of, a gorilla and Bobby prime time, not necessarily in the banter or nowhere near the equal to them. I'm certainly not comparing Crockett to either one of them, but the, the point I'm getting at there is that you may have two hours of just 20 minute jobber Madison square garden matches that you don't care about, but you're just watching it. Cause you just want to see and hear what, you know, Bobby and gorilla are going to say next. And that's what I, that's what I did with these championship wrestling episodes. Cornet, the weeks he hosted it dangerously, the weeks he hosted it with Crockett, they made the entire show watchable. And what was great was not only were they hosting the show and talking and interviewing, but they were, you know, commentating the matches. So it was like a full hour of Polly dangerously, just all these inside terms, all these wink and nod jokes. And you might not have picked up on them then, but you, and Cornette did the same thing and you can pick up on them now. And it's just, it's great. It's great watching material. And I encourage anybody who can to go out there and find, these championship wrestling programs, Saturday morning programs from this era of late 88 into early 89. First show here, December 31st, 88, uh, JYD over Eddie Sweat. Thought it was funny. Dog comes out to Michael Jackson's Beat It. Meanwhile, other uh, other wrestlers are coming out to uh, generic versions of, of theme songs, like Eddie Gilbert comes out, doesn't have hot stuff. So I thought it was odd that JYD got the uh, Beat It song. Which, <laughs> Did I pay for that? Yeah, I'm sure he didn't use it very long. Uh, J- <laughs> J- JYD already. Of course, Dog had just come in. He'd just gotten fired, canned from the WWF a couple months before this. 
I, I want to note these, the, this show and the, actually the next couple shows were recorded before Starcade, so it's kind of bland. There's not a whole lot of angles. There's a lot of vague mentioning of Starcade without mentioning who actually won matches and things like that. It's kind of clever at points. But dog, you know, I'll say it for the third time now, dog over Eddie Sweat. Original Midnight Express come out. Heyman's already on commentary. They work uh, Keith Steinborn, Bill Holiday. Uh, Steinborn just seemed to be out of sync. Yeah, Took, sloppy. Yeah, very sloppy. Took a nasty bump. They cut to Paul Heyman, uh, Paulie Dangerously, after that match. He's taping his fist, cutting a promo, because uh, they're on the house shows, they're working the managers, bunkhouse battle royals. It was very entertaining. He took turns trashing a lot of the... A lot of the managers. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, this is, I found this humorous. David Crockett being David Crockett, he tries to throw it to commercial, but there's a match. So he has to stop, apologize. It's not a commercial. We have a match in the ring. I, I, I don't know what else to say, but it's David Crockett. And, I mean, uh, how, how does this guy not win uh, Wrestling Observer Worst Commentator? I mean, that's the Gorilla Monsoon Award for some reason, but this guy was doing commentary for how long, and he never got it? I mean, well, come on. Maybe Gorilla wasn't the most technically sound announcer of all time, but he's certainly one of my favorites, and I would have never voted him anywhere near the bottom. And, you know, that's obviously, I feel that's just Meltzer, you know, against the WWF type stuff from back then. Uh, Certainly David Crockett deserves worst announcer, unless you look deeper, lower, like uh, the AWA at the time or something like that. Certainly (laughs) Crockett is uh, near near the bottom. Oh, yeah. Uh, we had it. It's hard to watch some of this WCW stuff from like 85 in those years because of him yelling and, of course, all the dusty talk, but that's neither here nor there. We uh, had Eddie Gilbert over Max Miles with the hot shot. Uh, go to commercial. I saw a commercial. I had to write it in my notes because it just stuck out to me as a commercial I remember from my youth. Uh, the laser beam wristwatch, how fancy and great that was. I mean, even back then, I thought it was junk. It's a, it's a wristwatch. But it doesn't, it's not digital. It's actually got hands and, and whatnot on it, but they're made out of what they call laser beams. And, and basically, it's digital uh, hands moving instead of just telling you the time with the, with the numbers. And I, it was, I just always thought that was absolute junk. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Back from Probably break. Probably not last very long. No, I'm sure. I mean, I think the commercial was out there for a little bit, but long enough for me to remember it. Uh, we yeah. came back for commercial. We had the Texas Broncos. Of course, Dusty had brought his son in at this point. Dustin, who was a rookie, I think he was only 18 maybe at the time, maybe 19. I'm not sure. Teaming with Kendall Wyndham. Dustin, like I said earlier, greener than grass. Kendall Wyndham had been around, but he looked like a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> he didn't fill he his body like, up for another like, 10 years. Yeah, he needed like 75 pounds from his brother. <laughs> They won over uh, Bob Emery and Michael Jackson. I always loved Mike Jackson. Thought he was great. He didn't look like a whole lot. I think you know that's obviously why he never got a major push. Hell, I just just saw a video of Jackson. I think earlier this year, walking the ropes. Actually, walked all four ropes, top rope all the way around, doing a spot recent, like right now in his seventies. So I just uh, wow. thought that was impressive. But uh, Mike Jackson was always a great. I lo- when I saw him in the ring, I knew this was going to be a fun squash match. Because he didn't just take bumps, he knew how to work, and he, he, was, he was really good. And I noticed a lot of the guys usually will give him a little bit. But anyways, Texas Broncos, uh, Dustin and Kendall over Mike Jackson, Bob Emery. Dustin was sloppy here. Obviously, he's green. I give him a pass. It wasn't nothing major, but uh, Kendall went with the bulldog on Emery, ends that one. Missy Hyatt returns or appears here in the NWA now. I'm sure Turner had her, yeah, had her on his list of people to hire. Missy does a promo with Humperdinck, again promoting the Bunkhouse Battle Royal. 
the manager's bunkhouse battle royal, I should say. I think it's the same interview that was on the Saturday Night Show as well. Yeah, um, yeah, same exact. I thought Humper- Humperdinck was really good. Um, I liked his voice. He had a, he had a different voice, and uh, I like how he hit on Missy at the end there. <laughs> we had to start uh, winning some of these battle royals. You think you can go out? <laughs> yeah, she turned that down pretty fast. Yeah, and he's like he was insinuating that she's the money, like a gold digger, and things like that. It was pretty sure. funny. Yeah, he was good. He was good here. And then uh, we had uh, Fantastics over Trent Knight and Todd Collins. Of course, Trent Knight, another one of my favorites of the era as far as uh, job job guys go. <clears throat> they did the old uh, Quebecers finish, the uh, somersault, the assisted somersault senton from the top rope. Won that one six minutes. Some of these squashes were drawn out a little bit <clears throat> longer than they needed to be, depending on who the uh, job guys were. Some guys could handle it. Some guys just had no business in there for six minutes. We go to the, the ladies who we I read in The Observer. I'm sure you saw too. They had been brought in to work some of these uh, managers' battle royals for fear that these manager battle royals weren't going to be very good. I don't know that this enhanced them very much, but uh, <laughs> here we had uh, Misty Blue, Misty Blue Sims, who was like the darling of the late '80s and the early '90s, and, and the after mags and the the indies and the lower promotions, AWA and LPWA and things like that. Teaming with Heidi Lee Morgan against Mad Dog Debbie and Cat Larue. Cat Larue actually just passed away a few days ago. Referee here was Teddy Long, Misty Blue. I noticed um, she damn near had a thong on <laughs> with in her gear here. She got the win over Mad Dog that? Debbie. Match went maybe four minutes. Uh, it what seemed did you think very, of the women? Um, better than I remembered, to be honest with you. Was the match good? No. But they themselves were better than I remembered. The moves looked good. They were fast-paced. Their bumps looked good. Uh, they tried hard. They did more than the Mula camp physically in the ring uh, on offense. Uh, they tried hard. They did things that I think just to get over that weren't even necessary. I mean, certain moves. So I, I didn't really care for the match, but I, th- I thought they, they tried very hard. And given more time, they, they may have made it, made it a little better. What I thought was weird here and abrupt was um, you had Misty and that Mad Dog Debbie in the ring fighting, and Misty kind of makes a comeback, and she mounts her in the corner for the punches and just, out of nowhere, in the middle of the punches, stops, gets down, gives her a one-footed monkey flip, laid on top of her and pinned her, and they went home, took it home in four minutes. So it just seemed very abrupt that she just laid down for a monkey flip and did the job. They must have been told time was short, time to go home. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely an odd finish. And then we have... We'll see uh, them later tonight, too, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, on the Saturday night episode, yeah, absolutely, on the, the six oh last 6.05 episode for the time. And then we have uh, the Commandos. Uh, Commando Ray and Commando Boone. I know, I know you have something you want to say about them in a moment, but uh, basically Ray, Commando Ray was Ray Candy, who had seen better days in the 70s, certainly in the tri-states and mid-south area, uh, working against Ernie Ladd. They were the draw, or at least they were supposed to be the draw, at one of the Superdome events there, New Orleans. Yeah, well, he saw better days. Of course, uh, Ray, Ray was never a small guy, but he bloomed up a lot in the 80s. Uh, Dusty actually gave him and Leroy Brown the gimmick of the Zambui Express. Ray Candy became Kareem Muhammad and started wearing those fatigue gimmick. Uh, The story goes there is they were supposed to be the Zimbabwe Express. I always wondered what a Zambui was, and I got the story years later. They were supposed to be the Zimbabwe Express, but Dusty couldn't pronounce Zimbabwe. He called it Zambui. So uh, (laughs) they became the Zambui Express, and he was uh, Kareem Muhammad. Of course, Leroy Brown was Elijah Hakeem. He kind of moved on, got a little older here. Stuck with Commando Boone, who had wrestled as Grizzly Boone, who was never good at all. Never did anything, worth anything at all. 
and they yeah, kind of paired them up together here as commandos. I enjoyed Ray Candy as a heel sometimes, not necessarily in the ring, but he was a hell of a talker given the right opportunity. He had a hell of a promo down in Memphis in the mid-'80s. Uh, Jerry Lawler used to host his own TV show on Sundays called The Jerry Lawler Show. It was kind of a little bit of everything show, a little bit of wrestling stuff, and then he would interview local guests or maybe maybe somebody more well-known, nationally known. Uh, but it was just more like a talk show with Jerry Lawler's host. And one week, Lawler wasn't there, and just randomly Kareem Muhammad was hosting the show. And it was absolutely hilarious. He was right spot on. The guy really owned, owned it. He did a great job. I, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, cool. here, man, the, you know, he's over the hill. He's actually not too far away from uh, passing away. Uh, Grizzly Boone, I, I don't know anything he did after this run. This was a dusty gimmick again, giving Ray Candy the gimmick and putting Boone with him. Just two big 400-plus-pound guys who can't really move or do anything. You're, here they beat Randy Mulkey and Randy Hogan. Randy Hogan. Of course, the play on Hulk Hogan, a jobber version of yeah. Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and, he's uh, selling stuff on Facebook these days. Pauly wasn't very creative, but he was still funny. I loved He was having fun with this match. They they did a spot where one of, them, one of the uh, commandos picks the, uh, Hogan up and holds him. And they run into each other, and they kind of belly splash them, uh, sandwich them with belly splashes. And uh, Heyman uh, dangerously calls it the Sylvester Stallone belly bump. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then when they finish the Hogan off with the double splash, both guys hit a splash at the same time. Uh, dangerously claims that's called the Schwarzenegger, and that's why they're real commandos because they're named after they, they name their moves after uh, Rambo and, and Schwarzenegger's commando movie. So again, it wasn't wasn't super creative, Paul, compared to some of the stuff he comes up with, but it was still fun. I enjoyed it. And oh, yeah, of absolutely. course the commandos go over there. I think dangerously, without a doubt, save David Crockett. If David Crockett had to host the show with anyone other than a cornet or dangerously or somebody who could just carry the entire commentary with comedy or just words, I mean, I think he would have been in a whole lot of trouble. And that was yeah. the end of that that was the end of that program. But I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed Paulie on it and I enjoyed just some little things here and there. Yeah, Paulie's definitely good. Uh, everybody knows his history and where he stands as far as that stuff goes. Uh, he's one of a kind. And it's, it's amazing that you can give kudos and things like that to a commentary team that has David Crockett on it. Dangerously must have worked hard. He had to work hard to help that. Those are the things I look for as well when I watch some of these old shows. Just listen to commentary, see how people, see what people are saying and pick up on things that I don't necessarily you don't pick up on as a kid because you may not be as well-versed and pop culture and things like that, but the Stallone get, uh, and the Schwarzenegger, that's, that's pretty cool because I love 80s action movies, so uh, it was a job well done by Dangerously for sure. All right, and before we move on to the, the PM show, the 605 show, just want to let everybody know, we're kind of I know we're kind of rushing through uh, the, the tail end of 88 here, and uh, starting next, next episode, episode two, we're going to introduce a lot more extra things, sound bites and other fun things. Still new to this thing, we're just getting uh, going and we're trying to get this thing up and running. So let's try to finish out 88 here so we can move on to 89. We go to the last, supposedly the last 605 show before they go to 705 uh, the following week, uh, December 31st PM show, 1988 world championship wrestling. We got a, we kick things off with a six woman tag in the ring. Of course, uh, Misty blue along with Heidi Lee Morgan and Zula. I have no knowledge of her. She's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I learned a lot from that. Taking on Linda Dallas, <laughs> mad dog, Debbie, Cat LaRue. 
Match was joined in progress. I did a little research on this Zula. Seems she also wrestled as Vula, so it may have been a typo on their end. I'm not really sure. Says she debuted in 1985. There's no way <laughs> that she was this horrible four years into the business. From what I, from what <laughs> yeah, I read, her, her, and, her and Mad Dog Debbie said they both trained under Killer Kowalski. I just, I don't see Killer Kowalski in her. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely, definitely not. An odd match to kick off the show with. I, I was uh, a little confused with that, but. Yeah, it was, it was pretty sloppy overall. Heidi Morgan was a firecracker, though. She came in with a lot of energy and was, uh, she kind of carried the match a little bit. Um, she's smaller, but she, she had a lot of energy and she was really, uh, working the crowd and getting things over. But the, the finish was sloppy. Uh, it looks like they messed up their timing or something that caused it to look bad. Uh, I think that's a theme for this show a little bit, to be honest with you. And we'll get into that for sure. Yeah, the only thing, you know, I thought they were wise from my re- my memory. I think they only tagged Zula in one time, and that was plenty enough for me anyway. Uh, Misty Blue and Heidi Lee both looked really good, I thought. Yeah. Blue pins I, I Debbie. Blue pins Debbie with a top rope splash. And then Morgan, uh, Heidi Lee also came off with a missile dropkick earlier in the match, so they, they were trying pretty hard. I think there was about eight minutes of the match shown on TV, which I was surprised they gave them that much time to begin with. So that was that was something different. I, I'll give them that much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't expecting a women's match and then turn on the network and there they are. I'm like, oh, this is going to be different. And uh, it wasn't bad. I mean, outside of the Zula part and the finish where it was sloppy, the, the women worked hard. They were fast. They were fast. And uh, I think they complemented each other well uh, outside of, like I said, Zula. I don't know what the heck that was. Moving on, we had uh, Eddie Gilbert taking on Trent Knight, one of my favorite jobbers of the time. Uh, I thought it was you odd. Like Trent Knight as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was odd was they had brought Eddie Gilbert back and kind of put him in there with Ron Simmons as a tag team. Just threw him in there as a makeshift tag team and uh, gave him a, a run to the finals of the U.S. Tag Title Tournament after the Sheep Herders had left. And uh, then they just split him up, no mention of Ron Simmons. And Eddie Gilbert's just kind of off into this new situation here with Ric Flair, Barry Windham. I'm not arguing it. I just found it odd. It's so it's so fast and abrupt. It was almost like a change in booking. Goes back to Dusty leaving, possibly. Yeah, it's that's definitely weird. I don't know why you just cut something off when you have him go that far in a tournament. But I, I think it worked out, obviously, for Eddie Gilbert. Uh, this without him on these last, you know, these first two or three shows that we watch, uh, these these shows would be a lot more boring. So Eddie agree, Gilbert's Ed, awesome. Yeah, Eddie's been seems to be a focal point of the last uh, few shows and uh, the next few shows. Uh, Gilbert wins here, seven minutes with the hot shot, maybe even for Trent Knight. Shot. Maybe even for Trent Knight a little too long, you think? Yeah, I think so. That's one of the notes I have down here is that I'm not sure uh, why they had squash matches go so long. I, I will say I prefer the WWF style squash matches. I mean, if you have a, not necessarily maybe Eddie Gilbert, he can show off some moves and toy around. But if you're going to have like, you know, rest holds like arm bars and headlocks and things like that to take up three or four minutes just to have a, de- a, a longer match, like it just takes away from... To me, it takes away from the, the main talent because um, it's like these guys are no-name jobbers. They should be getting taken out rather quickly. Um, so how can we take this guy believable if he's going against a Barry Windham? I mean, it, it takes you seven minutes to beat Trent Knight. What are you going to do against Barry Windham? Yeah, that's a really good point, too. Um, I really hadn't thought of that until you started saying it. As you were saying it, I kind of came up with the same idea before you even finished your thought. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense with heels. Heels like the punish guys, feels like the wear down guys like the Andersons, Tully Blanchard, things like that. Gilbert is the baby face. He's thrust into this storyline with Barry Windham, the U.S. champion, Ric Flair, the world champion. 
and it's you know seven minutes here with Trent Knight, but it's TV and people, uh, fans of the time were accustomed to it. Now they were a little wiser in the next match, Junkyard Dog over Todd Collins, <laughs> and in four minutes yes. with the thump. Of course, Dog had just returned the week before, replaced Nikita's spot on the on the roster, at least for short term, and then uh, of course Dog will get something else. They'll throw him another bone here in the next couple of weeks. That's not a fair trade. <laughs> and he looked pretty blown up, and he looked actually a lot bigger than his last WWF days. He Man, ballooned there, up a little bit. There's a reason why Vince let him go. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did like the thump finish. I don't know how you feel about that, but I was always a fan. The way he was landed on the people with the thump, I thought it was pretty good, even though it was just a basic power slam. He went at, at an angle, made it different. Those little things matter to me. Well, they always gonna, have. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'd say 1985, Dog was probably my favorite wrestler. I was never a Hulkamaniac, and I know that's cool now. Everybody says that, and this and that. I would never was. You can find any relative of mine, any fan of or friend of mine growing up, they'll know. I never despised Hogan as a as a kid, but he, I, I was like, oh, there's Hulk Hogan. Okay, that's fine. But where's Junkyard Dog? Where's uh, Randy Savage? Where's the Ultimate Warrior later on? Where's, you know, just, yeah, yeah. I was always into a lot of other guys, and, and, you know, obviously Hogan's a better worker than Warrior was, but it really had nothing to do with work rate with me it was just people i i enjoyed watching and and dog probably in 85 at least i'll put it this way when when i had all the thumb wrestlers that's who i wanted to play with most was jyd <laughs> so <laughs> good old thumb wrestlers. leave it right there yeah, i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of like you uh hogan kind of drew me in through like the coliseum videos and things like that because i didn't really watch tv like as a kid but hogan drew me in and then i saw the ultimate warrior and that's who i wanted to be like that was my guy that, that was the dude that drew me in. if anybody asked me why i'm a fan of wrestling still i, had, I always point to wrestlemania 7 i redid like looking at the hands and doing his shoulder blocks and all that like as soon as the show was over i set up cushions on the fireplace around the fireplace and did his running shoulder block for like an hour and a half two hours straight and i was hooked instantly so i get where you're coming from on the I love Hogan now. Uh, I mean, it's just nostalgia, but Ultimate Warrior is the reason I'm a fan. So, But that's not the time or place for that, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. Right. And kids at home, I recommend do not play with pillows near a fireplace. That's something Steve did. It was like there was no fireplace. It was just the the wall was sticking out a little bit there, and I just put three little couch cushions like in a square, and I would just, I did his fist pump and ran, and I just did shoulder block after shoulder block into those cushions for like two hours. Uh, Eddie Gilbert promo following the dog match. It was kind of uh, a PSIA more than an, uh, a promo. Eddie, uh, Eddie Gilbert, yeah. Jim Ross talking about don't drink and drive, New Year's Eve. Uh, Eddie Gilbert claimed to, that he had rented a bus or something along those lines for him and Junkyard Dog and some other people to go, to go out with. Yeah, like I, like I said, it was it was more of a PSA than a promo. Then Gilbert kind of they kind of changed it over to discuss his um, feud, if you want to call it that, with Wyndham and Flair or or whatnot. Yeah, I, I put that down PSA as well uh, since it was New Year's Eve. I, I thought it was a nice tie-in. I mean, obviously you want people to be safe, so kudos for to them for doing that. But I, I did like the promo he did cut. He's like five years ago, I wouldn't even challenge Wyndham, but now he's ready and he wants that U.S. title, so he's acknowledging that. He's gotten better over the years, and that's perfect for an underdog angle. So I, I thought when he did talk about his feud, he, he delivered. Um, and the crowd loved Eddie Gilbert. They loved this guy. We move on. We got uh, This was kind of odd. We saw uh, Curtis Thompson getting a win over Bob Emery with a power slam in five minutes. Do you know who Curtis Thompson went on to become in WCW a couple years later? I don't know. 
Firebreaker so, chip of the Patriots was Curtis Thompson. Okay, okay. <laughs> but Thompson here, I think this may have been the only match he won on TV. Um, I I like Thompson. I liked his look. He was uh, a bit sloppy here. Certainly not ready to be given a push here. Um, he spent a lot of uh, 1990 working in the Carolinas uh, for that South Atlantic promotion. And then uh, eventually in 1991, of course, Dusty gave him uh, the Patriots gimmick along with Todd Champion. Oh, that's interesting. I thought it was weird that they put kind of two jobbers, and we'll we'll touch on that maybe in the next, like not the next show, but the next show we watch on this episode. But well, I like uh, that they're throwing them out there, and they're saying, you know, this is your chance to get over. I mean, you know, they they would do that often with guys like Tim Horner, but uh, yeah. Horner was a little a little more established than Thompson here. But Thompson had the look, and I could see why they want to give him a shot here. I had no idea which one was which, but through the match, I was like, oh, the, the commentators kind of led me like pointed me pointed him out because Bob Emery. I mean, he he had a good look as well. Um, he was pretty pretty cut. Uh, he got a lot of offense as well, so it was a little weird. Um, and then the show goes down the toilet <laughs> because out come the commandos, Commando Ray and Commando Boone, uh, over Max MacGyver and Max Miles. Uh, Four and a half minutes splashed by uh, splashed by Ray Candy. Uh, I don't really have much else to say about that match. What about you? They were very slow, not agile at all, and that's what big guys need for me. People like Earthquake. If you're going to be that heavy, you got to be able to use it, and these guys had no idea. I mean, I, after what you told me about Ray Candy a little earlier in the show, um, that makes sense 100%. Uh, he's just an older guy, but these guys were terrible. They had no business being on TV. Which one was it? The Commando, uh, which one was the black guy? Uh, Ray Candy. That's Ray Candy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it looked like he couldn't even bend over, <laughs> so... Uh, the finish got was terrible. They they butchered it. Like they messed up. They want to do like the pancake smash from uh, Championship Wrestling, and then he looked around like, "Am I supposed to pin him now, or what am I doing?" And then they ended up doing the double splash, and it just looked really, really awkward. So this 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 was terrible. I mean, it, uh, absolutely no business being on a show. And keep in mind, this this show was taped before Starcade. It was a lot of just um, debuting a lot of new guys and getting a lot of new talent over from the ladies to JYD who had just shown up a week before this Curtis Thompson getting a win, the commandos who had not been there more than a month. And then next up the Texas Broncos who've only been there about three weeks at this point, the Broncos being Kendall Wyndham and Dustin Rhodes. Uh, they get a win here over Mike justice, Randy Hogan, Wyndham with the bulldog and Dustin drops that bionic elbow. They get the win in about six and a half minutes. You know, I kind of like the team. I think they complemented each other. Kendall had the experience. Dustin, I don't know, looked a little better, even if he had a little flab on him. I like the team as an undercard. I wish they had more time to develop. Yeah, I agree. I thought they, I mean, I, it felt like, uh, it looked like Dustin was going to be good. Uh, you could tell. Uh, he, he was just, I'm going to use his nickname, but he was natural at it, it looked like. He didn't look out of place yet. He had little spots where he was, timing was a little off, but it wasn't like he couldn't recover. They kind of messed up early. They missed a bad hip toss early. Kendall Wyndham, I think, did. And then, but I do love the left-handed, the left-arm lariat that Kendall Wyndham hits. He seems to do it every match. He connects it like right under the the chin, and uh, it looks really, really good. So I love that. A a good clothesline is one of the best-looking moves that you can do if you do it properly. And then again, another finish where they look confused and off at the end, like Dustin. Like he hit the bulldog, Wyndham did, and then Dustin didn't know if he wanted to go up to the second rope and do an elbow or what he was going to do. Then he just ends up dropping the elbow anyway. And 
he gets the win, but that's and the theme of this show, just uh, messed up just, finishes. And I think he just chalked that up to an experience with Dustin. I mean, he'd been in the business for a matter of a, you know, a few months at most. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, he had an excuse for being a rookie. So Missy Hyatt, they sell it like she returns or debuts or, or whatever you want to call it here. This is that interview we already talked about earlier in the morning with Humbert Inc., so we'll kind of skip over this. It's a good interview if you're if you if you got time to watch this episode, I would listen to it. Humperdink, I, I wasn't necessarily a fan of anything he did after Florida. I certainly didn't like him in the WWF. Wasn't really infatuated with him in any of his incarnations here in the NWA. Here, uh, when he was with the Samoans, or later on specifically when he was with the Freebirds, his Big Daddy Dink. I mean, uh, but here he was fun, and it was like reminiscing of how good he used to be. In his Florida days. We move on. The original Midnight Express, that's Randy Rose, Dennis Condry, with Paul Heyman, Paulie Dangerously, sorry, over Tony Suber and Bo Graham. Double Goozle, they hit the high-low, which is also Stanley and Bobby in one of their moves. Condry over Graham, five and a half minutes. And one, the, my one big take out of this, my one big note out of this match is I hate the WWE Network Midnight Express music. I absolutely loathe it. I hate it too. It's terrible. Especially, it's like an iconic song for them. Like that music is synonymous with the Midnights and whatever the hell the WWE Network pick is garbage. And I'm not entirely sure what's worse. This or watching primetime on the network every week, Rick Rude's music. Uh, that's equally as irritating. Oh, God. Hey, that dang beast, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a decent little match. The only thing I, that stuck out to me was Dangerously. Uh, he kind of stole the show a little bit from his squad, just with his antics on the outside, going over to commentary, Imagine carrying that. around a broom, saying he's going to clean up the NWA. And I wasn't a huge fan of Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. I don't know. Like I, I have a note down on one of these shows that Trent Knight looks like Randy Rose, so uh, <laughs> uh, he didn't really do uh, much better, for me. In, in better shape than Randy Rose, too. Maybe, maybe yeah. not the worker Randy Rose was, though. Um, you know, Randy Rose and, and Dennis Condry, to me, are just from a different era. I mean, I think in the 70s, Condry excelled up through when he took off from the Midnight Express. He excelled. and I But I think right around that era is when things changed over, and that, that body he had didn't necessarily work on the national level, if you will, and, and things like that. But I, I'm not taking anything away from Condry. Condry's uh, really flawless in the ring. Yeah, he's very smooth. The only, the only other takeaway I had from this match was, at one point, like you said, Paulie kept going over to commentary. Jim Ross randomly brings up the don't drink and drive again during this match. And Paulie, as a heel, basically acknowledges he's a heel and just says, you know, I agree with you. I wouldn't even drink and drive. And I'm, you know, like, I'm a bad guy. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, he, he did really well. They they didn't edit out a TBS bumper, so I love that. In between that and, and the Heyman promo that came up next, so that was kind of cool. They took a station identification there, and they left the TBS bumper in. So I love all that old bumper, those old bumpers and, and commercials and things like that. So that was kind of cool. We move on into a Heyman promo. He says 1989 is the year of the original Midnight's. I thought it was a great promo. Here, this is what was classic: was he's cutting a promo about what happened at Starcade before Starcade. Now, that's not what's cool, because we all know they already know what's going to happen at Starcade. He has to do it in a masterful way in which it sounds like they might have won, but he doesn't say they won because they didn't win. But he can't let the fans know that they lost because Starcade hasn't happened yet. And I thought that was really cool. I think people should check that out because he's out there. He said, we prove we're the better team a few days ago, meaning Starcade, because Starcade should have taken place 
four or five days prior yeah. to this, yeah. whatever. He said, we proved they're the better team. He didn't say we won. And what, you know, and so you kind of take it for what it's worth. They had attacked the other Midnights after the match, after they lost. So yeah. I, that was kind of cool. Genius. Excellent, excellent mind, excellent mind for his age. Twenty-seven years old, first time in, in like a major league, unless you want to count his run in the AWA. It was great, and, I, and he and there was a lot of inside stuff because he he also got over the manager's uh, bunkhouse battle royal again during this promo, and mm-hmm. he kind of like a lot of inside stuff and maybe some some inside jokes as well that we wouldn't even get, like uh, something about Humberdink and and loving Domino's Pizza, and he mocked Ivan Koloff's voice during the promo, but. I loved when he said something about Jim Cornette, all those years of driving to Evansville and Louisville and things like that. He was, you know, he was talking to Memphis territory and the people watching mm-hmm. at home had no idea what he was even talking about. But it's fascinating yeah. to go back and hear things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Heyman's a genius. Uh, he really is. He's so good at his craft. I even thought it was really cool. He's like, it's ni- 1989 is going to be the year of living dangerously. And we all know what happened with that name a few years later, you know, 10 years later, whatever the case may be. It was just a tremendous promo. He got, it was like maybe three or four minutes, and he touched on his feud with the Midnights, the Bunkhouse Battle Royal, and everything else that he needed to in about three or four minutes, and you believed every word he was saying. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of this feud, per se, but Dangerously and Cornette are uh, two of the main reasons why uh, it's worth watching and sticking around for. They're, they're awesome. Awesome, yeah. awesome, awesome. I believe this is the last match on the show. We got Fantastics over Mike Jackson. And Randy Mulkey, Tommy Rogers off the top with a splash onto Mulkey. They got the win in about six minutes there. Again, the match felt a little long for me, given the position on the show for a squash. I mean, but I mean, it was what it was and it was cool. And really, my only thought here was we're coming out of Starcade, so the Fantastics had just dropped the U.S. tag titles to the Varsity Club. The issue I, or the confusion I have there is they had just won the titles two or three weeks prior to losing them but they won it in a tournament. Why give them the belt in a tournament and then drop the belts two or three weeks later to a team that wasn't even in the tournament finals? Of course, Fantastics ended up beating Eddie Gilbert and Ron Simmons in the finals because they were supposed to wrestle the Sheep Herders in the finals, but the Herders had taken off to WWF to become the Bushwhackers. So Simmons and Gilbert were kind of thrown into the finals. And then the Fantastics were given the belt. Makes me wonder, were the Sheep Herders supposed to get the belts and that's why they needed to hurry and get the belts on another heel team? Or is it just, Again, the change in booking. Dusty wanted the Fantastics, but the next booking regime wanted the Varsity Club. So, yeah, that's definitely odd. I don't know why you would. I mean, especially if you have a tournament, then that's your opportunity to pick who you want as champion. So, the Sheepherders, I'm guessing, are the ones that kind of put them in a bind. Yeah, and you know, I said I thought that was the last match, but I, I forgot they at the then they would go on to show from Starcade Rick Steiner's match over Mike Rotunda to win the television title, which was a lengthy match and. To get a pay-per-view match or even a title change or a, a long competitive match like that with a finish on television was something else. But to just a few days after Starcade, they insert this into the, the television programming. Uh, it's something else to, to for fans to have been able to get to see this. Yeah, I'd be pretty heated if I paid pay-per-view for that match. And then three days later, it's free on TV. I'm guessing they felt like it's New Year's Eve. Nobody's going to be watching anyway, so we'll try to spike a rating and throw a Starcade match on there. That makes sense to me. Yeah, this is a great match. I love it. Tommy Young comes out at the end to get himself over, per usual, and then they go nuts for Rick Steiner winning the title. It's just a shame, like we talked about earlier, that he just totally lost all momentum rather quickly. Right. And then from there, we had um, the post-match 
Ric Flair interview where Magnum interviews Flair and J.J. Dillon uh, after the Luger-Flair match at Starcade. That's where you can hear Gary Capetta in the background announcing the Bunkhouse Stampede match going on. The dark match took place at the pay-per-view. Basically, the gist of that promo was just Flair mentioning that uh, that was Lex Luger's last title shot. He will never get another title shot ever again. And that was like the hard sell for the next several weeks that Lex Luger would not be ever getting another world title shot from Ric Flair again. And then uh, this is where I was really blown away was not only did we get Steiner over Rotunda in its entirety, but we got highlights of the Midnights versus the Midnights, the Russians versus Dog and Koloff, Sting and Dusty versus the Road Warriors, Luger versus Flair, even a quick clip of the Bunkhouse Stampede match, which was only a dark match. All these matches from the pay-per-view, and we're getting, you know, nice little chunk clips on television here. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. I know, like, the WWF, they go, they just show you little photo snaps and say, this is what happened. So to get all that, like like I said, three days later, one, I'd be mad if I paid for the pay-per-view, and two, I'd like to know the ratings of this show to see if it helped, to be honest. But yeah, that's pretty awesome of them. Um, well, my thing right there is with no time to build, no time to announce any of this, I don't know if the ratings changed all that much, especially for New Year's. Starcade only, I think, what was Starcade on the 26th or something? This was the 31st. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely interesting. And uh, it just makes you wonder, too, if like this is like, okay, here's how this is how it's going to go going forward. Like, here's the definitive finishes. Here's these matches. This is what we're going to be all about going forward. And then they start fresh in 89 with all new things. So maybe they're just trying to give people a sample of what's to come with the NWA. Yeah. You know, just to close out this show, keep moving because we got a long way to go still. I felt this show was kind of a throwaway show. And not, not I'm not saying that in a negative standpoint. I just mean you really couldn't do much with it because it was taped before Starcade, several, a couple weeks, two to three weeks before Starcade. And it's airing after Starcade. So the live promos, you can't really give away any of the finishes. So what they did here really was spend most of the show getting over a lot of the new talent without showing title changes who might have won or lost a belt. So they promoted a lot of the newer talent, young talent and returning talent like like JYD. They didn't really give anything away. Like I said, they didn't really use a lot of promos that would give anything away or people that were involved in a lot of the Starcade matches dangerously, masterfully walked his way around that. Gilbert and Heyman both were, were vague in their feuds with the Horsemen and Cornette and Midnights. They didn't give much away. That's all we, we had for that show uh, before we move on to the main event the following day, January 1st, 1989. It's our first day of 1989, and we're finally into 89. Yeah, let's get started. So we open up main event, the Texas Broncos again, Dustin, Kendall Wyndham over Jerry Price, Mike Jackson. Kendall was solid here. He he just looked like a stick. I mean, that's, I just never could get over that in the 80s. I mean, and he, yeah, was he, even, was so he was skinnier than this in his Florida run in the mid-80s. He's still just wow. like, awkwardly skinny here and bulldog elbow combo again on price they they the broncos go over in like three and a half minutes which is what a squash should be they looked good too fast really to have any flaws so i was fine with that match um i was too i like the left arm lariat again and then jerry price over rotated on that backdrop and like damn near blew out his ankle yeah (laughs) Um, that looked nasty Two more matches, both of these competitive matches. Fantastics versus the original Midnight Express. It was nice to see the Fantastics against a different version of the Midnight Express. I've seen them so much against Eaton and Conjury, Eaton and Lane. So to see Conjury and Rose here against Fantastics, it was something different. I enjoyed it. They got the, the heat on Tommy Rogers. He did a double dropkick, one-footed on both heels, hot tag to Bobby Fulton. All four men came in. Fulton hit an awful-looking <laughs> Body block on Conjury. 
The referee was with Tommy <laughs> Rogers and um, Randy Rose. So dangerously with the phone, nails Fulton with the phone, Condry covers the win. 11 and a half minutes. I got to say, as much as I liked it on paper, it was not as good as I w- would have thought it was going to be. But it was fine. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. it's just, I expect whenever I see team names like that involved, I just have this higher expectation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tommy Rogers is awesome. He's so smooth and so good. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen him mess up like a match or, or a move in a match. No, definitely um, one of my favorites of, of the period. He's very underrated. I don't know if you caught this, um, but like Fulton does the dance a little bit, and then Ross says the women like it, and some of the guys out in San Francisco. Um, I don't know if I heard it right, but uh, I'm pretty I'm sure. sure you did. Yeah, Jesse um, Ventura like, wow. was Jesse Ventura was notorious for dropping San Francisco jokes like that too on people. Yeah. <laughs> and then the camera was a little shoddy too. They they dang near missed Rose's jump off the middle rope on the outside. Right. Uh, they quickly switched, and then they came back and barely caught it I'm like man you guys are missing all the hot spots but yeah yeah that's another thing i'm I'm going to be touching on i'm sure week to week is um the camera the production the director uh they miss a yeah. lot of spots just cutting the girls and the crowd and and other random uh, so- things going on in the crowd i mean during a spot it's not like there's a chin lock and an arm bar there's there's guys hitting the ropes and they're cutting to the crowd and things uh there's actually I won't get into it right now, but in a later episode, there's a there's a finish to a major match that's not shown because they're too busy filming people in the crowd. But anyways, we go on. I thought it was cool. There was a commercial break here, and the commercial was intact. I enjoyed the Encyclopedia Britannica commercial. Loved those growing up. Yeah, I did too. They're great. Man, so. He's, uh, used to say, I always wondered where my mandibula was, and I was like, I didn't even know what a mandibula was. You wonder where it was? <laughs> But yeah, I, oh. I used to love those commercials, so that was cool. I, I, I love them. Blast from the well. past. Then we go to the main event, which was really cool. Just on paper, listen to this. You got Ric Flair, world champion, and Barry Windham, U.S. champion, against Bam Bam Bigelow and Dusty Rhodes. This is one of those times Bam Bam's in for a few weeks before he takes off again. I really wasn't expecting a finish here, but Bam Bam was just so impressive. He had everything at that time. I don't really know what went wrong in the United States. I don't know if he was hard to deal with business-wise. But I mean, he was he went he was everywhere. Japan, Memphis, the WWF. Now here, he cleans house to open the match. He goes against Flair one on one, which was a cool sight. I would love to have seen a, a Bigelow versus Flair match in, in their primes. Oh yeah, Bam Bam is so good. I loved uh, near the beginning of the match. Flair does a strut, and Bam Bam does a cartwheel to respond. So that was kind of cool. Dusty eventually yeah. tags in, drops some elbows on Flair and Wyndham. Dylan a little flip flop and fly. The faces, I don't know if you noticed, and you'll, you'll notice this a lot in Ric Flair matches and, and, and also Ric Flair, Barry Windham tag team matches. The baby faces dominate two thirds of the match, and it's usually the beginning of the match. So the baby faces actually had control, and I timed it the first 10 minutes of this match, constant, like straight yeah. through. And there's an early clash where Flair and Windham take on the Stanley and Bobby Eaton. I don't know if it's clash three or four, but that match is kind of same, the same yeah. way. And, uh, it's really fun to watch them bump around like that, but, Sometimes I wonder if that was giving them too much. Yeah, it it definitely can. I mean, like you you just used to your typical tag match with, you know, four or five minutes of the good guys and then the heels get the upper hand and they milk it for, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, however long they want to go. And then you get the hot finish. Uh, It was definitely weird to see uh, the good guys, but I'm just assuming Ric Flair and Barry Windham love to bump for these guys. Dusty and Flair fly so many times. So it was just probably chemistry and everything else that they have. Especially during this period it. where where they weren't necessarily getting along at all uh, on a professional standpoint, yeah. but they go yeah, that's definitely weird. But, uh, together. 
Flair yeah. did a little comedy spot there before the heels took over where he did the, the flip over the, the top turnbuckle and stumbled down to the floor and then fell over the guardrail into the crowd. That was fun <laughs> stuff. Uh, I said yeah, 10 minutes, but it was also. actually, yeah, it was, it was great stuff. And I said 10 minutes, actually 12 minutes before the heels took over, which is a lengthy period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And then it was just basically the claw hold from Barry Wyndham after that. Uh, I was on Dusty. It looks like oh, Dusty okay. got the work over with the claw. And then Bigelow comes back, and we get some more press slams. I, I think right. for like the Big- first few minutes, that's all Bam Bam did was press slams on uh, all of them. Bigelow with a sunset flip on Wyndham at one point. Yeah, yeah. Bigelow, man, he's so ridiculous in the 80s, like athletic-wise, how fluid and freely he carries that weight and moves it around. It, it, it's just it's amazing. I'm just wondering if Japan paid him more because I know in the Observer he mentioned that uh, he's supposed to come back after his Japan tour, but then like a week later he's like, "Nope, he ain't coming back." So I'm I'm just just I'm wondering if Japan paid him more, but I don't know how long he was over there. And I don't know uh, who negotiated negotiated the deal either because Dusty was good friends with Humberdin going back to Florida for years and years. In fact, that's how Humberdin got a lot of jobs was through Dusty. So yeah, I mean I don't know. Yeah. Dusty was gone. Maybe that could have been also why they didn't really broker a deal with Bigelow and, and Hubbard Inc. to come right back. But um, the finish here was Dusty gets a flare and a sleeper. JJ Dillon comes in with the shoe because that was the gimmick at the time. JJ was hitting people with his shoe. I hated it. Hated it then. Yeah. Hated it when Woman was doing it on Nitro. I hate it. Yeah, Anyways, Dillon comes in to use the shoe on Dusty. Hubbard Inc. comes in and takes it. Tommy Young sees, you know, what's going on, and he calls for the bell. The match goes 18 and a half minutes, but ends in a disqualification. I didn't expect to finish, but I would have loved to seen one here. This would have been a really awesome surprise if we could have got a pinfall on this one. I also didn't care yeah, for the, this particular DQ finish because, again, I hated the shoe. I don't know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't like the shoe gimmick either. It's just a loafer. I ain't that heavy of a shoe. I can see if it was like a steel toe boot or something like that, but... To act like it's going to just knock somebody out is uh, that's a little insulting a little bit <laughs> to and, the and intelligence. I, and I love the three-match format here, the way the main event would be. Usually you get a squash match, a mid-card match, and a kind of a main event match. That was the idea of what the main event was originally supposed to be anyway. Yeah. Um, and nothing says more 80s than those extremely long printed out signs from the, the old computer printers. And there's somebody with a giant sign in the front row, but what I loved about it here was it was like a 10-foot sign, but it had been laminated. So it was like a poster that was laminated. And I was just like, wow, I have never seen that before. And I can't imagine what that costed in the 80s. What that oh, I can only imagine. Holy cow. I wonder if they still have it. <laughs> yeah, I took this to my NWA taping. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. If, you, if anybody's listening out there and knows anybody with it, let us know. I'd like to see it. I mean, maybe I'll buy it. But um, we move on <laughs> to the next week. Championship Wrestling, the Saturday morning program, January 7th, 1989. Uh, this week, it's Cornette hosting with Cro- David Crockett instead of Paul E. Quick match, Stu- Sting and Luger over Gary Royal and Rick Allen. Gary Royal, a shell of himself here. In the early 80s, he had worked for Angelo Papo's ICW and some other places. He was in fairly good shape and had blonde hair. I don't know that he was ever anything more than an, an undercard underneath guy, but uh, he certainly has changed a lot by here. He's let himself go and let his hair dye go as well. Stinger splash on Ricky Allen, torture rack from Luger ends this in four minutes. Exactly what a squash needs to be. Uh, Roadies promo with Ellering. Chi-Town Rumble. They're uh, promoting, I think, animals wearing the Chi-Town Rumble shirt. Good way to get over your pay-per-view without really having to shill it yet. They cut a promo on the Varsity Club. This is where I start getting confused a little bit because 
the Road Warriors are, are heels, technically. Ellering and the Roadies are heels. But the Varsity Club are heels, too, and they're more established heels. And so the fans are wanting to cheer the Road Warriors anyway. So it's even though it's supposed to be heel versus heel, to me, it's, uh, I mean, I don't see how you're getting the Road Warriors over as heels, putting them against other heels. They should should have been working faces and getting more heat if you were wanting to keep them as heels anyway. Yeah, I agree. I don't, that whole term made no sense. Um, and then you put them in there with the heel team, what, two or three weeks later? Makes no sense. I'm assuming, yeah. like, like we kind of agreed on, it's probably just Dusty being gone. So they're just undoing everything that he did. We got uh, Al Perez and Larry Zabisco with Gary Hart. I always found that to be a very odd team uh, over George South and Trent Knight. Zabisco's the Western States champion still. That's a thing here still in 1989. The Heels cut a promo. They both want a title shot at Ric Flair, a uh, world title shot. Again, we're going back to heel versus heel because Flair is a heel. Uh, during this match, uh, Gary Hart's also, I guess, managing Abdullah the Butcher. Abby comes out and for no reason starts eating things around the uh, studio. Cornette's having fun on commentary with it. Perez looked good in the ring. Hit that alley copter. I always liked that alley copter as a kid. I, I, I liked great. it better when Sid did it, obviously, but but I was surprised <laughs> for, for Perez's size how he could get the guy to spin in the air. Oh, yeah, that was great. I love that finish. It's another show for another episode, but I put that down the exact same thing. Cornette, when it's done properly, especially yeah, by Sid, it's right. such a great move. Cornette, uh, it again, does an inside joke here or a comment here abby starts eating the papers on the podium and they're jim cornett's notes for the show and i guess abby tore up one of the pages and cornett finds it. he goes well i lost segment six so i thought that was funny that <laughs> he kind of admitted he knew it was coming and uh, I, I saw a spot i saw a spot here i don't know that i've ever seen before and it's not anything spectacular but i just it was different Perez, at one point, Perez put Trent on the top rope and then kind of like pressed him off on his own. Usually you see the, the guy going to the top rope, getting caught and then thrown off. And Perez actually placed the guy up there to throw him off. So that was different and kind of weird. And then uh, Zabisco wow. ends it on Trent with a swing and neck breaker, about five minutes. How there, long should have went? Uh, and the, the promo afterwards with Gary Hart, Zabisco, and Perez, at one point, Larry promises to be world heavyweight champion in 1989. Well, he wasn't lying. He was AWA, World Heavyweight Champion in 1989. So he wasn't wrong. <laughs> Is this the interview where Tony like grills Gary Hart on his relationship with J.J. Dillon? You know, he does it a couple times, I think, and this may be one of those times. Yeah. I thought that was interesting how uh, they played it up as if like Gary Hart was not going to do anything to rock the boat with J.J. and the horseman, but ends up cracking because his two guys want the shot. I thought that was... It was a different storyline, a different angle to take things. Yeah. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I thought it was creative and job well done by them. And I wish I made a soundbite during this promo because this is another one where Cornette was going into business for himself, just having fun. I was never a major Gary Hart fan on promos. I, I, I don't care what anybody says, how great of a manager he was or whatever. I didn't get it a lot of times. I felt he stole a lot of things and took credit for them. And I, I saw him stumble over so many or contradict himself. And so many promos, I don't know that he ever took it as seriously as maybe he could he could have. But uh, I'm sorry if I offended a lot of Gary Hart fans out there. Not trying to knock the guy. I have respect for his you know career as a manager and a booker. But this is one of those times where he really just lost what he was saying. He said uh, something about Flair will be six. He's five time champion. He'll be six times champion. Like as in saying 
one of his guys are going to beat Flair, and then Flair's going to beat one of his guys, and Cornette catches <laughs> it. And instead of letting him just, you know, sweep it under the rug, Cornette calls him out, and he goes, so you're saying that Ric Flair's going to beat one of your guys back after they beat him, right? Like he's, <laughs> like he's calling <laughs> out on it. I wish I had, I grabbed a soundbite of that, but. That's great. Yeah. Cornette is always paying attention and always picking up on things like that. Steve Casey over Agent Steel. Steve Casey looked so much like Stan Lane with a with a mustache. It was insane. But Casey's just green here. He had no business getting a push at this point. I loved him in Global uh, as the heel Steve Dane. Uh, but here, not so much. Gets a win over Agent Steel, who's actually Gene Anderson's son, Brad Anderson. What was funny was Casey not only looked like Stan Lane, but he even did a, a super kick like Lane. I think that was even mentioned in commentary. But he's just too green here. Uh, he'd get better maybe a year or so later. Russian leg sweep by Casey wins it in about four and a half minutes. Promo with the Varsity Club. They're the U.S. Tag Champs. They're call they call it the Road Warriors. Sullivan does some Sullivan type promo talking about the Road Warriors, comparing them to big dogs from his youth and how he shut those dogs up by taking pliers and pulling all their teeth out while they were sleeping. And I'm wondering how were these dogs sleeping while you were pulling teeth out with pliers? So I, I, but that was Sullivan being <laughs> Sullivan. Yeah. His story was that he pulled their teeth out and then he just slapped them around. That's what they're going to do, the Road Warriors. He used the, he used the line, uh, he liked to snack on, dine on death and snack on like fear or something like that. I know he used that a lot. He did that like two or three straight shows. And he's like, you got death coming and it's Dr. Death. Positioned it really well. So uh, yeah. sometimes Sullivan can nail a promo. Sometimes he's too loopy and out there for me. He's definitely better here in 89 than he is in, like, 95, so. We had uh, Russian Assassins up next, which were Jack Victory and Angel of Death over Bill Holiday and Randy Hogan. They did the loaded headbutt gimmick against the Jobbers for no reason. I don't understand that other than just to get it over and just to be heels, but I really don't understand that even in that facet. Angel uh, tags in, gets the cover after Victory cheats. Nothing wrong with the match. But again, I said earlier, the, the generic masked foreign team thing just doesn't cut it in 1989. It's about as generic as it comes. Absolutely. And then just after watching Curtis Thompson get a win in the last program, here we go, Eddie Gilbert over Curtis Thompson. This was boring and bad. And Thompson was blowing spots, and Eddie gave him a good hot shot. I mean, he and, and when Thompson started uh, screwing up spots, Eddie laid in, laid in some shots, and then he ended the match. <laughs> Four minutes. So Thompson gets a win the week before. Now he's doing jobs in four minutes, right back to where he was. Yeah. Uh, not surprised there. He looked pretty rough against Bob Emery. So he, like you said earlier, he clearly wasn't ready for any sort of TV push or anything like that. So good for Eddie Gilbert to lay one in on him to uh, wake him up a little bit. They were promoting a, a main event for the show. By the time we got to the end of the show, it was evident it wasn't going to last very long because there was like five minutes left in the show. It was a U.S. champion Wyndham defending against Dick Murdoch. Both guys, second generation, they put that over. A lot of people forget Dick Murdoch's father, Frankie Murdoch, was a wrestler as well. The match doesn't even go four minutes on TV. They promised a big, I mean, and I put this in quotations because this is the way they sold it, big main event every week. And here we, the very first time they do this, we get a three and a half minute no finish. So damned his four minute fight though. I mean, I'll tell you that. They, they they were really trying. Murdoch even threw an awesome dropkick in there. He was really good. I love Murdoch. I love his crazy-ass promos. I love his the way he works. He, he looks like he has no business being in the wrestling ring. But then he goes out there and lays in dropkicks and 
Yeah, he was amazing. Flies around and he has crazy bumps and oh man, he's the best. He's one of the best and uh, he doesn't get the dues he deserves. But man, he was so funny. He was so good. And I think I they knew that. And I, yeah, another one of my favorites. So underappreciated and forgotten by you know the current wrestling fans. But uh, Murdoch, I mean, you know, they must have knew they had three minutes to go out there and they tried to do everything they possibly could in those three minutes. I mean, Wyndham even locked in his claw. I love Murdoch trying to break it by climbing up to the middle rope and jumping off and hitting an elbow. But, you know, Wyndham kept the claw locked on. I like that. And then Murdoch slid on his belly backwards out of the ring to finally break the hold. And then he hit his trademark elbows on Wyndham's throat over the apron. It looked good. Everything looked good. I mean, unfortunately, it was three minutes and had no finish. And then we get the old, we're out of time. Um, that was it. That was the end of the show. Oh, that's rough. I wish we could get some uh, some finishes on those. I'm going to cheat here. And uh, the night, the, the, the very first 705 show on TBS is actually January 7th, 705 show, uh, is a year in review show. So it's just a bunch of things that have already happened. We've already touched on more recent stuff. So really don't need to go into that show. We can kind of skip past it. Uh, we don't. I don't normally plan to do that, but in this instance, it's just a bunch of rehash, nothing new. So we're just going to kind of skim over that. I don't have footage of the main event from January 8th, but uh, I do have a couple quick notes here. Just Texas Broncos over Max Miles and Mike Jackson, and then a singles match with Bobby Eaton over Randy Rose. When the managers uh, both got involved, I guess something like dangerously came in first and got Rose on top of the cover, and then uh, vice versa, Cornette came and reversed it and stuff while things were going on. So that was pretty much it from what I got from the main event, January 8th results. I, again, I can't find the footage. If anybody has the footage, I'd love to see it. Wink, wink. So contact us at Wrestling Grenade. Uh, but we'll move on. And this is uh, where we're going to finish up with the January 14th and 15th programs this week. Uh, January 14th, Championship Wrestling, the AEM program. It's uh, David Crockett back this time with Paulie Dangerously. Kick things off. The Road Warriors murder Bob Emery and Josh Stroud <laughs> in a matter of about, about 15 seconds. Varsity Club come out to cut a promo for the match, but the match goes 15 seconds. So. That didn't last very long. Like the promo didn't get the, he barely got started before it was over. Roadies leave the ring after murdering those guys. Uh, they confront the varsity club. Sullivan tells them to find themselves a new partner for a six man tag and quit waiting for that. I quote Jap Tenru to uh, show up. That was the times though. Yeah, absolutely. So much crazy, like so much stuff that is said and done back on these old shows that would never ever see the light of day in today's product or in today's world. Definitely interesting. Uh, at that point, you know, they're out there confronting one another. Hawk and Dr. Death bump chess, which is, you know, was cool. You want to see Dr. Death get into it with other badasses. Of course, the Road Warriors still supposedly heals, so they're, they're aggressors as well. Animal doesn't wait for anything. He just goes and grabs a chair right in the middle of all this and just <laughs> floors Sullivan with a chair shot from behind. Uh, Hawk and Doc go brawling over by the ring, and uh, Rotunda comes running out. Tax animals, so now they're outnumbered. Kevin Sullivan knocks Paul Ellering into Paulie Dangerously, and I don't even know what the point of that was for, unless it was just to just to get a heat on Dangerously and make him take a bump. But I thought it was an awesome angle to start, and really, I had forgotten the feud between the Road Warriors and the, the Varsity Club. I'd forgotten anything that had transpired to generate the heat. So this was better than anything I remembered. It at least gets me a little more interested in it than than I was when I remembered that that they fought, but I really couldn't remember why. And at least this adds a little something. I, I enjoyed it anyway. I thought it was a really good angle. It definitely sounds like a good way to uh, 
make it look like there's two teams that just they don't care about anybody but themselves and they're just out to kick each other's you know what so uh this would definitely pique my interest and make me want to pay to go see these guys go at it especially like if it, if it ever progresses it's like a street fight or something like that i think it'd be uh really 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 good i um, think if they had uh, continued to build on this this would have been something far more interesting than what it wound up being but um, anyways, the rest of the show, we got the original Midnight's over Mike Jackson and Jerry Price. Dangerously is missing at the beginning of the match because of the bump he took in the prior angle or segment. He does return in the middle of this match, though, complaining about it and back to the commentary. Dennis Condry wins this on Jerry Price with a brain buster in about six and a half minutes. Uh, that, they follow that with a Dangerously and original Midnight's promo, a clip of the Midnight's beating down Cornette after a, a match on another program i don't know if it's pro or worldwide but it was basically another fantastics versus original midnight express match and Cornette got involved and it, it wound up being the original midnight express being down Cornette. randy rose tried to cut a promo here not very good not very good we got the texas broncos and steve casey a six-man tag full of two green guys and, and kendall windham leading over eddie sweat keith steinborn and dale laparus i don't know why what provoked Eddie Sweat, if that's his real name, to keep that last name as a wrestler. Kind of long match. Steve Casey looks really sloppy. Finished the match with Bret Hart's sit-out clothesline that he would hit the Hart Foundation finisher, the heart attack. Uh, but he just, just hit it without the assistance of anyone. Did not look very good. Casey looks great physically, but he's just so green. Too green for TBS. He, he, this is where the territories would have paid off. And he spent a little more time there before getting called up. But looking like that, the body he had, the looks he had, I could see why Dusty or whomever decided to try to take a stab with him. Obviously, it doesn't pan out. And pretty soon after this, Casey will become an underneath guy. Uh, promo from J.J. Dillon. He discusses Lex Luger being done as a world champion or world, uh, getting world championship shots. He addresses Gary Hart and his friendship with Gary Hart uh, over the years. He addresses that Al Perez and Zabisco want title matches. Tonight, uh, Barry Windham on this program will take care of Eddie Gilbert, he claims. Uh, Dylan says Eddie just simply isn't at Barry's level, which that could be true, but I, I enjoyed watching the build of Eddie Gilbert here. I don't know what happens to it. I'm interested in seeing what happens with it and what goes wrong or when it goes wrong. But for right now, Eddie's in a good spot, and Dylan is out here trying to get him over by putting a, putting the bad mouth on him. Eddie rebuts uh, after the break. Eddie Gilbert's out with a promo, uh, his own promo on Barry Windham. He he talks about basically talks about his time as a heel, his hot stuff. Eddie Gilbert, the heel, says everybody's told him he's lost his edge, and he says he has it, and he'll prove it. Great promo. And uh, we got a um, match with the Junkyard Dog and Michael Hayes. This is your main event of the week, ladies and gentlemen. There's still more to the show, but this is your main event. Last week, remember, it was a three minute match between uh, Windham and Murdoch. This week, we get JYD and Michael Hayes. Versus the Russian assassins. Now, if that's not a main event, I don't know what is. The rest, the rest of the the, the, the yes, but yeah. but the rest of the the show was filmed in the studio. This was actually filmed in arena somewhere. I'm not really sure where. Uh, we had Crockett and Tony Shivani on commentary for this particular match. Uh, it was a nothing match. Literally nothing happened. Went about five and a half minutes. Michael Hayes plays with played with trying to rip off the mask of the assassin. He picked up the Angel of Death, Assassin number one, for a slam. Uh, Victor, Jack Victory, Assassin number two, comes in and pushes 
the angel of death on top of Hayes while Hayes had him up for a slam. Uh, it looked awful. Hayes, first of all, barely had the Russian assassin up to his chest. Then Victory comes in and literally gives him a two-handed love tap to the back of his partner. And Hayes sells it and takes a bump backwards. And, but, and then if that wasn't enough, that little love tap was not just enough to knock Michael Hayes on his back, but it was enough to cause the momentum of Michael Hayes to roll back over on top and pin the assassin. So it was not oh good. God. It was not good, but the only thing, good thing I can say about it is at least there was a finish. So Michael Hayes and the dog over the Russian assassins in five and a half minutes. Not good. Al Perez and Sabisco over George South and Gary Royal. Gary Hart joined commentary. Some more shenanigans from Abdullah the Butcher outside the ring. He actually attacks Gary Royal at one point. Perez was, does a sloppy looking forearm off the middle rope onto Gary Royal for the finish in about 445. Uh, so Perez and Zabisco still continue to team, even though they both want world title matches. Follow that up with a promo from Gary Hart, Zabisco, Perez. Al Perez, another bad promo. Perez had everything in the ring. He had the look. No doubt about it. Oh, yeah. I, I loved Al Perez. I was uh, excited when I when Global first came on GWF on ESPN because Perez was there for the first few weeks, and I was so excited to see him in like that main event setting. But as a promo, just no dice, just lost deer in the headlights. Uh, so it's yeah, only that might have, yeah, and that might have been his only flaw as a wrestler, uh, as a as an on screen performer, other than his charisma. I'm sure he he lacked a little bit in charisma too. Now. What he did behind the scenes, another story. I know a lot of people didn't get along with him, but that's neither here nor there. Larry was really surprisingly into this promo. Like, he was really selling things here. He was really having fun. He mentions retiring San Martino in 80 and Bockwinkle in 87. He says Flair is next. He keeps dropping the, the 14 glorious years in professional wrestling. to the, And he does that every week to the point where uh, Tony Schiavone even starts saying it. And it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I thought... Cornette and Polly were both excellent on this show. It's too bad, you know, it doesn't go on for a longer period of time, but they really made the show and hosting each week uh, with David Crockett. And we'll move on. Saturday night, WCW World Championship Wrestling on TBS, uh, 7.05, January 14th, taped on January 4th. U.S. Champion Barry Windham versus Eddie Gilbert. Uh, I really, I really love this match. Uh, the crowd was insane behind Eddie Gilbert. Uh, one of the comments I have down here is for Barry Windham, like it's a shame he kind of let himself go and he blew up yeah. the way he did over the years. And so young. He has, he has such a tremendous look and was so good in the ring at this side. If he would have stayed the way he was in 89, in 88 and 89, mm-hmm. uh, there's, no, there's no reason he couldn't have been on top of any promotion in the world for an extended period of time. He was so good. Just an amazing talent. I don't know where it all went wrong, but man, he must have liked to eat. But I, I really like the match. Uh, he was just, the, uh, if if there was ever the title natural, and I don't mean a nickname. I mean if there was a, if you could ever call one wrestler on just a natural, flawless, the way they moved around the ring and and just they were always a step ahead of where they needed to be. It, it, it was it had to be Barry Windham. Absolutely, yeah. That's one of the reasons why we I I wanted to do this year is because of him, and he's he's just so good, so talented. It's it's amazing. What a, what a talent, what a talent. And it's a shame, kind of like Dick Murdoch we talked about earlier, like he, he's just kind of forgot. Um, yeah, and that's really unfortunate because he was in the, you know, he was in the Horseman. He was at least in the semi-main event. He 
was an amazing, tremendous athlete. And that, that really is unfortunate that Wyndham isn't talked about in higher regards than, you know, than he is. He may be the most deserving to not be given the accolades or as Lex Luger would say, the allocades. Yeah. yeah this it's, it's... But this match between uh, Wyndham and Gilbert went about 12 minutes, ends with a disqualification. Gilbert gets the win when Ric Flair attacks. They do the double team beatdown. I enjoy seeing something different. I enjoyed seeing Gilbert in this position. Maybe he was rushed a little bit into this position with Ric Flair, but this could have been something big if they just spent more time building it and not kind of pushed Gilbert to the side later on. It was still refreshing, yeah. though. I, I enjoyed seeing somebody different in there that could handle themselves. Gilbert could certainly handle himself uh, on the microphone, and that's really where it starts. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel like he played the victim really good. His comeback and just like the commentary was really good by Ross and Tony talking about uh, his heart and how he doesn't, he's never going to quit. He's always, it seems like he's always trying to get up. He's always trying to uh, go for a quick pan when the, when the guy's not paying attention or he's always trying to win or just get back on his feet. The only thing, the only knock on this match, I mean, it's not like the greatest match in the world, right? but for a TV match and a TV opener, it was really good. I just feel like his comeback could have been a little bit longer. It seems like as soon as he, started getting his comeback flair came in almost immediately. I, I just wish his comeback would have lasted maybe another minute or two. I felt the story uh, there. To, I mean, and maybe I'm just making up stories. I don't know. But I felt the story there was just Wyndham was just beating on him and beating on him and beating him. I mean, he just couldn't put him away. And then the guy starts to fight back, and they're like, no, we're not having any of this. And I think Dylan kind of explained that explained that in the, uh, the post-match promo because he says, you know, Wyndham and, and Flair, they have bigger and better things to deal with than Eddie Gilbert. Basically just passing him by, not even acknowledging him as a, as a real threat. So I kind of like yeah. that. And, uh, of course, yeah. I, I liked the match. It was perfectly fine for TV. I didn't mind the disqualification finish, A, because it was the opener, B, because it was on TV, and C, because we know it's setting up something bigger, which we'll get to on the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, so like I said, Dylan cuts that promo after the match, gets Gilbert over by kind of dismissing him. And then we get a promo yep. from Dusty Rhodes, a pre-tape promo from an arena somewhere. Uh, they, when they threw to it, they claimed Magnum TA was interviewing him, but Dusty was just sitting there cutting the promo by himself. So I'm assuming this was kind of re-recorded uh, for some odd reason or something. But uh, Dusty, basically the promo is going to throw Dusty into a feud with Wyndham, which is odd because we know what's happening with Flair, and Flair's tied up in a program. So you would think Eddie Gilbert was going to be the natural opponent for Wyndham here for the U.S. title. But yeah, instead, that's why they're making sense to me. But instead, of, yeah, and but instead, of course, because Dusty's still there at this point, uh, he's in line for the U.S. title match with Barry Windham at Chi Town Rumble at this point. Uh, too bad he's gone. <laughs> by the time this airs, he's gone. I believe. I think Dusty's already out the out the door by the time this airs, or shortly after. I like that he acknowledged that Arn and Tully were gone without mentioning their names. He says, you know, there's only two horsemen left. You know, down to Flair and Windham. Uh, even on the way out, it was very passionate and a good promo from Dusty Rhodes. So even if he cut that promo knowing he was leaving, he gave it his all. He did a really great job with the promo. And I'm not a big fan on Dusty in 89 in the NWA uh, working the semi-mains against guys like Wyndham who could be working other people. But I did enjoy the promo here. Always a good promo. And that said, I did enjoy Dusty working the semi-main or whatever you want to call it in the WWF. It was more cartoony, more character. It, it just fit better. I liked him with Boss Man. I liked him with Savage until it just got beaten to death. Yeah, they ran that to the ground. But we go on. Uh, Michael Hayes, your favorite wrestler of all time, uh, oh, taking on Paul Lee. 
even at three minutes, this felt a little too long for me. Michael Hayes wins with the DDT in three minutes over Paul Lee. Do you want to talk about Michael your favorite Hayes. wrestler? Or? I'm already tired of Michael Hayes. Um, I'm sure we got plenty more to come in 1989 with Michael Hayes, but uh, he did a lot of headlocks and arm bars and does a DDT finish. I, I don't know. He does this every match, and it, it's already old. I guess he could talk, but like, even his promos aren't the greatest. Uh, he's just rambling. So Another this is one guy in 89 yeah. that <laughs> he's going to be pushed. Yeah. And, yeah. And you got a long, long way to go with Michael Hayes in 1989. So I guess I'm strapped in and ready to roll with this. What's that smell? Dookie. Get ready for a lot of Dookie, Michael Hayes. <laughs> and you know, another odd thing that happened during this match was uh, Steve Casey came out, ran, randomly appeared near ringside, and then I, I don't even understand what was that was supposed to lead to or whatever they were thinking with that. Did you notice that? I didn't know if you saw that or not. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. That's when, yeah. uh, that's one of the first times I've seen Casey. And uh, I liked his look. He looked jacked. So uh, oh, he, yeah, I was kind of interested. And I loved him. I loved him. One of my favorite heels in Global uh, later on in like 91, 92, when he was seen with Chaz and the bungee cord match and all that other stuff. Loved Steve Dane. But here he had not ready for prime time would be the, the sentence or the, the moniker I'd give him. After the match, Michael does a Hayes does a promo. Now he's with the dog, Junkyard Dog. So we go from Nikita getting replaced in the Ivan Koloff team by Junkyard Dog to Ivan Koloff now getting replaced in the and so we started with two Russian, fake Russians, Nikita and Ivan. Nikita gets replaced by the dog. Now Hayes replaces Ivan Koloff. So now we have a completely different team, Michael Hayes and the Junkyard Dog. And I'm sorry. I look over a lot of things. There's two there's two dynamics I can never overlook in the world of wrestling. I don't care if it's fake, I don't or whatever you want to call it, work. Um, there's two things I can't overlook. I can't overlook the nineteen eighty seven Survivor Series team with Savage Steamboat and Jake all on the same team. I can't do it. I don't know what Steamboat's doing there. <laughs> He's had his throat <laughs> his throat crushed by Randy Savage. He had a, a, a knot, you know, on his head from Jake the size of his entire skull, DDT on the concrete. And like a year later, he's teaming, or less than a year later, he's teaming with both of the guys. And then there's this. Michael Hayes not only blinded the Junkyard Dog once in Mid-South, but he blinded him twice when they did the angle also in Atlanta. So it's just, you blind a guy, and now he's your buddy. You guys are just out there having fun, laughing, and playing, and you're a tag team randomly out of nowhere. And it's a weird-ass team. I mean, the team, I just don't even get the team. It's just, if you had taken one guy who could work and put him with either one of them, it would have made more sense. You just took two guys who really aren't known for their in-ring ability and stuck them together in a tag team. I don't know what they were thinking. What idea this was. Yeah, I don't know either. JYD so far past his prime at this point, and he's only getting heavier. And then Hayes, he, does, he has no idea what to do in the ring. Obviously, he's a professional. He knows what he's doing, but whatever he was doing wasn't very good. So, And don't get me wrong, Hayes for years and at such a young age drew money there's no there's no questioning that he drew money in the mid-south he drew money in dallas he could draw money he could talk people literally talk people into the building but as an entering performer even though he's only in his late 20s here believe it or not he's he's gotten worse instead of better in my in my estimation anyway he started resting on his laurels. It sounds like, you know, I can just talk anybody into a building. I don't need to work very good. <laughs> Let the other guy carry me. So we'll move Whatever. on. Uh, U.S. tag champs, Kevin Sullivan, Steve Williams, over Randy Hogan and Mike Collins. So I like Sullivan nailed three tree of woes and then his double stomp and then still tag Doc in. 
to, to hit the Oklahoma stampede on Collins. Match went four minutes, and about a minute of that was just them hitting finishers. So that was, that was devastating <laughs> for poor Collins. I love Sullivan's work. He's so fast, and he just looks out of control on a madman. And the trio woe and the double stomp, he just, he just did stuff that was so dirty and like stomping on their hands and doing things like that that yeah. just looked like, man, he's just he's awesome here. I, I really enjoy Sullivan. Uh, they follow that up with a promo with the Varsity Club, a paint-by-numbers promo. Sullivan you know, says that, that they're the bullies, not the road warriors. Obviously, they're feuding with the roadies. And then Rotunda basically makes it clear he wants his TV title back from Rick Steiner. Not a whole lot to this promo, just like I said, paint-by-numbers. Uh, we follow that with road warriors over Mike Jackson and Dale Laparouse. Jackson uh, gets dropped right out of the start, so... They kind of did him a favor. You can always tell when they like somebody or or the job guy actually has talent. They'll kind of kill him right away and send him to the floor and then beat the living crap out of the other guy. Dale gets the, the beat down in this one. Uh, the Doomsday device ends it, which you didn't see a whole lot back then off the shoulders on Dale. Match went about 40 seconds. Jim Ross uh, still playing him up his heels, even though they're getting pops. Yeah. They're dev- they're still over, and we did we got the stretcher job like the old mash unit coming out to take Laparouse out while animals around the roadways are cutting their promo. Yeah, um, they took him out on a stretcher. Yeah, it was good. Uh, you don't get to I see that it. too much anymore, really. Uh, I, loved uh, it with, I loved it with Sid. I was actually you know just watching something with Sid doing that, and uh, I liked it here. I mean, a, a move like that should be, and that's how that's why things aren't taken so seriously anymore. Guys kick out and get up from things without even selling them. That before you know they were going out on stretchers, and that's. Really, they've watered yep. down the entire business by doing that. But I'm not going to get into out on a stretcher. Yeah, and now dude's losing his eye. Yeah, <laughs> getting walked out. Like okay. After the squash, the you know roadies do an interview with Ellering. Animal announces that Tenru, as their new partner, even though it had already been acknowledged on an earlier episode, uh, the championship wrestling episode that morning, as their new six man tag team champion partner, they trash Americans. They say the Japanese are better. That's why they chose Tenru. Yep. I like the promo. Uh, it's like, we can't trust anyone in the United States anymore. Cause like, you know, Dusty left them and some of their other partners have kind of traded on them. So they went over to Japan to get the baddest dude over there in Tinder. So I really like the promo by animal. Good job. Another promo follows with Ric Flair, Barry Windham, JJ Dillon, Eddie Gilbert interrupts. Well, I'm going to tell you something, Ric Flair, as much as uh, Dusty had everybody drop his name during 85, 86, 87 uh, during their promos, whether he had anything to do with them or not. Ric Flair has dropped Ted Turner's name on every promo since we, <laughs> everything we've covered so far. Like, yeah, he's trying to get in. So yeah, but uh, <laughs> Gilbert interrupts the, the promo. He wants a tag team match the next week. He's found a partner. So in the matter of this hour or whatever it's been, Eddie Gilbert has been screwed, attacked, went backstage and found a partner that's not there right now. This is not like now when you have a cell phone, you have 100 numbers on your cell phone, you make a call. So somehow he had this guy's number. I don't know if it was in a suitcase, where it was, and convinced this guy to come in and team with him in a week's time. So I'm amazed at how good of a talker Eddie Gilbert is. But uh, Well, you can he, think of it this way. Like maybe he's like, you know what, the horsemen, they're going to do what they do. They're going to cheat. I'm not going to get a fair shake here. So I'm going to – I kind of figure that's where it's going to go. So I'm going to have something lined up to get him back. I mean, I was more or less mocking the fact that he found this partner so so quickly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I given it, given yeah. who it is and, and, and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He and basically he comes out. out. He's try- Yeah. And again, no cell phone. What's he using? The <laughs> phone? I mean, yeah. 
He he wants them to agree to the match, Gilbert and a mystery partner versus Wyndham and Flair next week. Dylan says he'll agree to the match as long as it's not Lex Luger as his partner. Eddie assures them it's not Lex Luger, so they agree to the match. That match is set up for next week and our next episode. Yeah, I like how Flair gave uh, Gilbert some kudos. He says Gilbert's a real man for coming out and out here and doing what he did after what Flair and Wyndham did to him earlier. He's like, it takes a real man to come out here and face us face-to-face after we just basically whooped his butt about an hour ago. So Flair may not be taking the match seriously, or he may not take Eddie Gilbert seriously, but he's giving him the kudos uh, by saying, you know, he's a real man. So Flair is clearly one of the best ever at promos. So this is a fun little segment here between the four of them. Next match, we got the original Midnight Express with Paul E over Trent Knight and Bob Emery, about four minutes. Uh, they do a move where Condry kind of picks Rose up for an atomic drop or something and just kind of assists him in hitting a leg drop on Emery. And Paulie names it the human cough drop. And I just, I don't know if he was being serious or if he was just trying to have some fun here because it was, that was an absolutely ridiculous name, the human cough drop. <laughs> That's great. I didn't pick up on that part, but yeah, Heyman's good. And then they follow with their own promo again, Paulie and the original Men Express. Another, another paint by numbers, but done very well because Dangerously is involved here against uh, Cornette and uh, Lane and Eaton. Uh, they're basically building up to a loser leaves match between the six. And uh, yeah, Paulie just hits another home run with another great promo. Yeah, I like how he planted the seeds for the loser leaves town match. I like that foreshadowing a little bit there. Really good promo. Another match, Larry Zabisco and Al Perez again teaming up uh, over George South, Curtis Thompson. More Abby nonsense. Uh, Abdullah out again during the match doing shenanigans around ringside. I don't know what this dude was getting paid to not have to work a single match and just come out every week and eat a few pieces of paper. I mean, just, it's amazing. Yeah, I wish I could get that gimmick. I mean, geez, I'm not a fan of Abdul the Butcher, but so the less I see him, the better. Al Perez gets the pin on George South with the alleycopter in about three minutes. Quick match. Uh, lots of talk during the match of a Perez title match against Ric Flair. I think they had one coming up in Florida, so they were selling that. Uh, promo follows with Zabisco, Perez, and Gary Hart. Zabisco again with the 14 glorious years. Starts talking about retiring. And this time he doesn't name any names, but he says, I retired somebody in 1980. I retired someone in 87. Ric Flair's next. It's probably the most fun Larry's been for me in years. I think I stopped enjoying Larry Zabisco in, in regards to things I've watched of him uh, after his run with Bruno. And I don't know that yeah. I enjoyed Larry Zabisco again until I started watching these promos here because I loved them in the enforcers with Arn Anderson. I was in, in, in the dangerous Alliance, but there was a long period there in the AWA where I could, I could care less about Larry Zabisco. And uh, yeah. I, I've had a lot of fun with him here because he's just having a lot of fun coming out here and getting the cut promos. It's a, it's really yeah, a shame he, they didn't do more with him in 89, but I mean, he went, went to his father-in-law's promotion and won the world title there. So what are you going to do? family man you gotta take it but yeah i enjoy his promos he's one of my i love him like on nitro and stuff like that so seeing him and watching him work here and cut the promos that he's cutting they're really good and he has the voice that people remember so uh, uh again great job we move on to dig murdoch over eddie sweat with the brain buster i'm a little confused with murdoch week to week he's a face he's a heel he, he's i guess he's a tweener is what you would call him they really have nothing to do with Dick Murdoch right now, he's not in any programs. He's not being managed. He's not getting mic time. 
He's just coming out and working matches. Uh, we've seen him against Barry Windham, who's clearly a heel. This week, he's working Eddie Sweat, and he's pulling Eddie Sweat up on the count of two uh, during the match, which is a heel move. But anyways, Murdoch gets the win with a brain buster in two and a half minutes, quick pro, or quick match. Move on to Missy Hyatt interviewing Ric Flair. Flair continues to reiterate he is done with Lex Luger. He will never challenge him for the world title again. This interview is basically just about Flair denouncing Luger as a uh, challenger. Yeah, and I like how he said he just used his, uh, kept his feet on the ropes to keep his balance after Missy was uh, trying to talk to him about cheating in the match. He's like, using the chair was just in the heat of battle is what happens. Flair steals a kiss for Missy at the end, and she's kind of just left in awe of the champ. I thought it was a funny way for the interview to end. But yeah, really good promo by Flair. Just, Luger hasn't been on these shows yet, but Flair is talking about him quite a bit to keep him in the minds of everybody else. Uh, Let me ask you something, man, on a a guy's perspective. Was there anyone hotter than Missy Hyatt during this period? I mean, just naturally hot. No, I don't think so. Wrestling-wise, no. Uh, Absolutely not. I don't think so. I'll go beyond wrestling. I I don't know that I would have cared for anybody. Uh, I mean, she was just amazing. (laughs) An amazing Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Miss Elizabeth was pretty hot, but in a totally different way. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And that more respective... Uh, you know, like somebody you girl, you take home, home to mom kind of way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Missy's the complete opposite. <laughs> Even here, she looks like somebody you have a good time with. Uh, where Miss Elizabeth, like you said, you take her to mom and dad's and not have any concerns at all. So, but yeah, you're right, man. She was you know, smoking hot. And you know what really shocked shocked me about her was in the last several years when she goes on Twitter or whatever whatever uh, social media she's on, she references all these angles, all these historical things that happen in wrestling, she's really knowledgeable about the business. And I never really knew that she studied it like she did. So it's, that's kind of cool. Too. Yeah. I love it. Like she, I used to follow her a little bit on Twitter, but she, yeah, she's, I watch this show and this show and this show. Like she watches it all the time. It seems like picks up DVDs and things like that, like Japan. And she watches AEW and everything else. I'm with you. I had no idea. I just thought she was in the business to make money, but um, just hearing her stories and, how she got involved in the business and then how much she knows is pretty dang awesome. It's always good to see those people that appreciate the business they worked in for sure. We'll move on. Uh, Jim Cornette's Midnight Express, Eaton and Lane over Keith Steinborn and Gary Royal. And Steinborn has looked off in some of his matches before, but he was really blowing spots here. It was, it was very awkward to even watch. I'm not sure what really went wrong here, but it was, it was not fun. Embarrassing. Lots of mistimed, spots and bumps on Steinborn's half. But uh Midnight's yeah. win it with the Vegematic. I loved the Vegematic. One of my favorite finishes. You don't even really see it barely at all, but I loved it. Eating over Steinborn with the Vegematic. That's where Stanley kinda elevates the guy almost in a catapult position while Eaton comes off with the Alabama jam. And it's one of my favorite he uh tag team finishes of that. Oh period. that's great. I like it too. Really, really cool finish. Uh they follow that up with an interview, Cornet and his Midnights. They air a clip again of dangerously attacking Cornette with the phone. Cornette, yeah, you know, that, like, Cornette basically points out that he's not over the hill. He's only 27. It's amazing. <laughs> this guy is 27 years old here. It's just you, you don't think of him being that young and being able to just, God, the passion that he cuts in these promos, the, real, the realism uh, at, at age 27. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell he was a fan. Like, you, you can tell the ones that love the business and aren't just in it. Cornet dangerously, those guys, like you can tell different. And we kind of end the show, or, or well, our next 
competitive match, we kind of end the same way we ended the opening competitive match with, with another DQ and another run-in like we did with Wyndham and, and Gilbert. Now we have Rick Steiner, television champion, Mike Rotunda getting his rematch. Match ends with a disqualification when Dr. Death runs in and attacks. Match goes about nine minutes. I don't know if you caught this during the match. Mike Rotunda actually bites. Rick Steiner's hand bites Alex. So I, I really yes. like that. So, and it was kind of, it was extra, extra funny for me because Rotunda was such a technical guy. I don't know who gave him that idea. I don't know that he would have thought that on, on his own. He was just so serious in the ring, but, but it was, it was good. I thought it was clever. He was, when he bit, bit the hand, bit Alex. Yeah, I liked it too. This match, there's not a lot of rest holds, which is uh, different for like a Mike Rotunda match. You like to arm yeah, bar. He sure did. Yeah, lots of chin locks, lots of arm bars. <laughs> There wasn't there wasn't much of that in this one. I think it's because they knew they had a, a non-finish, so I think they wanted to give them something to remember it. Well, these guys were on the varsity club together, too, and they probably wanted to bring out the best in each other, make, make each other look good. Sure. After the DQ, Teddy Long, who I should have mentioned Teddy Long's referee here. He's a referee at this point. Teddy Long's thrown to the floor. Uh, the varsity club uh, triple team, Rick Steiner, and hit a double spike pile driver on Steiner. They go for Rick Steiner's dog who uh, before I, I had mentioned uh, it was uh, JYD's dog, but you, you corrected me off, off here and, and uh, pointed out it was Teddy Long's dog. I do apologize. I guess I had dogs on the mind. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. JYD and Michael Hayes do come out and they make the save. The dogs seem comfortable <laughs> out there. It didn't, you know, they found a good yeah. dog. I'll say that much. It, you know, it let Jun- Junkyard Dog hold it. it. It didn't really go crazy with all the nonsense and fighting and everything going on. I don't know if you get away with it nowadays with PETA and everything else and the way this cancel culture world is, but yeah, bet you know, the dog wasn't harmed uh, before anybody goes looking for that on the video, but yeah, JYD is just sitting there holding the dog. The dog's just as calm as can be. And then, uh, yeah, we go, definitely the right dog for it. and so I enjoyed it. I, at this point, let's say Rick Steiner was a made man at Starcade. Okay. At this point, they haven't dropped the ball on him yet. So what I want to do going forward, is to keep a count of how many weeks we think they didn't drop the ball on this Rick Steiner because I want to know where it went wrong. I want to know what week they just dropped the ball on this Rick Steiner push. And so far, I would say, I don't know if you would say or not, I would say they're doing a perfectly fine job with keeping Steiner over. I think so as well. I mean, it's a TV. You're going to get a non-finish there for a title. At least you, you expect to. Yeah, I don't, I, I'd love to know too. Uh, that's definitely something that I'm going to look forward to and kind of point out see what we can find that causes it to just be real i know there's a lot of stuff going on uh with hot stuff and all of them that come up later on i don't know they put these two guys together that were super over at the start of the year and to totally lose all their momentum and they'll say hey put them together so i'd like to know what caused it as well so that's going to be interesting going forward and then we got um lex luger and sting teaming up with a quick squash over agent steel and bob holiday Sting with the Scorpion Deathlock on Holiday gets the win in about five minutes. And then they close the show with a promo with Sting and Luger. Lex talks about being denied future shots with Ric Flair. Jim Ross references Butch Reed coming in to Sting because we'll learn that that, that eventually gets set up for a Chi-Town Rumble. Really no backstory to it, but I thought it was interesting. Jim Ross just kind of randomly referenced Butch Reed to Sting here, I guess, setting some groundwork for it anyway. Yeah, planting some seeds there. A little bit of foreshadowing and getting ready for the pay-per-view that's coming up in a month. Which I'll give give them at least, at least Ross was smart enough to do something. At least they were planning this far ahead as far as the matches for the the show anyway. Yeah, it's like if Ross didn't say anything, we'd have no idea that Sting and Reed had anything going on. 
uh, probably to the pay-per-view, to be honest. Yeah, good job by Ross there. But I, I like how Luger dominated, said he dominated the matches with, he had with Flair in 88 and that he never got beat clean. So I, it's a good way for Luger to get um, keep himself in that position at the top of the card. Um, good job. I like, I like Luger, though. And that closes up the January 14th episode of World Championship Wrestling. Um, I also was able to find the January 15th main event. Just some quick results from that. Nothing really to write home about. The, the show was hosted by uh, Tony Schiavone and J.J. Dillon. They, you know, Dillon used this as a platform to kind of get himself or his own men over also, which I noticed dangerously and Cornette were really good at doing as well when they, when they hosted Championship Wrestling, the Saturday morning show. Here, Dylan really just talked about Gary Hart's guys, Larry Zabisco, Al Perez, and his future, or, or sorry, past relationships with Gary Hart and whatever. Um, but anyway, the, the matches on the show, they were all filmed from the Omni, the January 1st, 1989 Omni show. Just three matches were shown. Al Perez over Agent Steel in about four minutes, 45 seconds, after two alley copters. Not in succession, but he did hit his finisher twice within a matter of a minute or two. Mike Rotunda over Curtis Thompson in about five minutes with a double underhook suplex. Really nice throw. It wasn't just your, your typical double underhook. I really enjoyed it. And Rotunda being a collegiate uh, wrestler, he, he knows how to get in there and um, throw guys around. So it was, it was nice. Curtis Thompson still trying to get timing down. He's still looking a little rough around the edges in the ring. But just, again, two quick squash matches there. Neither one of them went more than five minutes. And then the main event went about, about 14 minutes, I think, something like that. Dusty Rhodes, Junkyard Dog, and Rick Steiner over Paul Ellering, Road Warrior Hawk, and listen to this, Dr. Death Steve Williams. Animal, I'm not sure if he was injured, what the deal was, but he was subbed out by Dr. Death. I'm assuming, I'm not really sure because they had already filmed things with the Varsity Club Road Warriors feud, but here Dr. Death works a perfectly fine, as a perfectly fine partner with Hawk and Ellering. So it was really weird watching this even if it was filmed on January 1st. Uh, Steiner pins Ellering with a cradle during a six-man chaos at the end of the match. It was weird seeing Doc with the roadies, you know, given the circumstances, like I said. Really good stuff in the ring between Dr. Death and Rick Steiner. Dusty did a cool spot where he double-noggin knocker Dr. Death and his own junkyard dog together, so Dog didn't feel anything. I really loved Rick Steiner at this point. I liked him before he got more thick. Less mobile, maybe would be the word. Not that I didn't like the Steiner brothers, but I just as as a singles wrestler, I thought Rick Steiner was really good when he was more trim. Yeah, I agree. The Steiners both got way too big. They were really, really good, and then they just got way too big for their own good, um, and it hampered them big time. I'm assuming they did that to get some more money. Yeah, I, I, I love this Rick Steiner as well. I love the curly hair. It's a little different. And he, he's just a badass, but he, he plays to the kids so well that it's just a different dynamic that you don't really see from the NWA at all. But, uh, yeah, I love me some Rick Steiner as well, especially here. And uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this week as far as the reviewing goes. Uh, we will return next week uh, where we'll pick up with the January 21st weekend. We'll try to take it through everything up until before Clash of the Champions 5 because we have a little a special episode planned for Clash of the Champions 5, a watch-along. We'll have more on that next week. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Thank you, Alfred. I encourage everybody to stay tuned to more of us here at the Wrestling Memory Grenade. We did a bit of a rush job this week to get caught up to 1989 and get going. This show was a little longer because we spent a lot of time covering 1988, the tail end of 88. We've got a lot more coming, including some fun awards and stats we plan to add to the shows. 
Uh, some watch-alongs planned, like I mentioned, Clash of the Champions 5. We're also starting uh, with Episode 2. I hope to begin inserting sound clips. I've already got some queued up from episodes of World Championship Wrestling, the main event, things like that for your entertainment. Clips of things we might have found amusing, weird, or just da- a damn good promo. As we loosen up a little bit, we promise we'll only get better. Thanks for sticking with Episode 1, and we hope to have you back next week. Tell your friends and wrestling fans, please follow us at Wrestling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N, Grenade, on Twitter. That's at Wrestling Grenade on Twitter. I want to once again thank my co-host, Steve Ekstat, for being here. Steven, thanks for joining me on this first of what I hope to be many rides down memory lane. It's my pleasure, sir. It's been a great time, and I can't wait to start recording the second episode, buddy. So for Steve Ekstat, I'm your host, Ray Russell, saying from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin, and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there. You wonder why your ratings are up, huh? You wonder why this is now in prime time. You wonder why they move the time slot to 7 p.m. Because now everybody can watch Coast to Coast in prime time. I'll tell you why. Paul E. Dangerously. That's right.